Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. What do you like listening to? Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of an episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham. I've just blown my voice out doing a massive A up before, uh, so bear with me while I introduce my very special guests, David Stubbs. How do you do? And Taylor Parks. Nice to meet you. Let me be the last person, chaps, to wish you a happy new year. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's been amazing. I'm going to have it yeah, I'm gonna have it next weekend, I think, when I see, when I see t- family. Oh, uh, lovely. Uh, up t- North, as uh, we all t- say, because that's yes, how you do it. Northern t- accent. <laughs> so, how we been, chaps? Anything pop and interesting happening in your lives? No, actually, no. Let's 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 change that. Let's go straight to Taylor. Pop crazy youngsters have been fretting about you, Taylor. As your house, is it still the undersea world of Taylor Parks? <laughs> no, it, it's dry uh, as yet. No further twenty thousand gallons of water as. Uh, has been uh, projected out of my toilet. Um, I'm just approaching the new year like it was an unexploded bomb. And uh, uh, that and listening to Kishori Amonkar uh, in the dark at three o'clock in the morning, as usual, which, funnily enough, is precisely how I imagine middle age to be. Lovely. David, it's been a while, hasn't it? Oh, it has. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, it's been um, a lot of things going on in your life. Yeah, yeah, one or two. I mean, um, in fact, um, what about the last time um, I was up in that Nottingham? Um, oh, yes, indeed. Yes. You were whoring your book round. And I, you, you I, came, I was, yeah. It was you, kind you of a... You came to old Nottingham. Yeah, it was a whistle-stop tour, really, because the week before I'd done Bristol, and um, mm. that all went very nicely, except some geezer who was obviously a bit pissed up and kind of sort of, um, you know, studying... St- I could tell from the beginning he was going to be a kind of a pest because he was sort of yeah. belching and making gratuitous noises. And just midway through, he just pipes up. And, I don't know, I, 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 what about Green Day? I think they're a pretty good group, them. Green Day. Better all this electronic stuff. And, yeah, um, this is this is your book about uh, this is Mars by nineteen eighty, isn't it? Your book yes, about right, yeah. electronic music. Yes, in you know music that in perhaps in spiritually, mechanically is antithetical in every respect to Green Day. So uh, mm. God knows what I was expecting. Anyway, he was ushered off the premises. Um, I gave him a bit of a frosty look. Um, he seemed a bit crestfallen well actually. I think he thought that I was going to be kind of you know the one person in the room that's sympathetic to him because you know he'd already raised a few complaints. But uh, I bet yeah. he goes to all the Q and As and asks about Green Day no matter what the book's about. 
Yeah, yeah, some sort of plant, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Insinuate mm. Green Day into every cultural context. But um, <laughs> anyway, a week later, there I was in Nottingham, and um, my manner, governor, yeah, absolutely. And um, so anyway, it turned up at the venue, and it turned out that uh, the chap was meant to be kind of doing the kind of Q and A. The host, he'd been uh, taken very ill. Um, yes, he was in intensive care. That, yes, he was intensive care. Yeah, I hope he's um, you know back on the mend now. Um, which meant that um, your good self. Stepped into the yeah. breach, which was indeed yes. What a good egg, I thought. Um, well, I was going to do. I couldn't let you down, David. No, no, of course not. No, no. I mean, you know, it was Nottingham representing and all that. And um, indeed, yes. Um, but yeah. I have to. Yeah, it was. It was, it was all right. But I, I was massively upset that uh, neither of us got bummer dogged. Oh, I know. Nottingham yeah. let me down that day. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're kind of like Nottingham lets me down every day, to be honest. But <laughs> that day in particular, it was, it was very upsetting. Mm. But, you know, fuck it. it that, that would we, been... we carry on. We plough through, don't we, David? We do, yeah. I mean, that would have been the lusty canine cherry on the cake, wouldn't it? But, yes, uh, yeah, you can't definitely. Have in, in his own fucking hometown as well, man. Looks a bit like a cherry on a cake, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's still no statue of Bummer Dog in Nottingham, but waiting outside a school. <laughs> with a big bonk on. Yeah, Disgusting. Well, sounds... Wait till I'm Lord Mayor, I'll fucking sort that out. Oh, I basically unfurled the rich tapestry of Nottingham's musical legacy at your feet, didn't I, David? I'll never look at the town in the same way again. Uh, and um, and then, to cap all that, yeah, I got a meeting with um, Shappy from Sleaford Mods, you know, to kind of round off the tour. We had a good old chit and a chat while yeah, he had a, a in toddler the in his arms and he was just effing and jeffing. Yeah, absolutely, he was just in the precinct. Him. I don't know if you arranged him to kind of pop out from behind CNAs at an opportune point, but no, no, that was... No, uh, we were, as, as, you know, as Nottingham uh, power couple sorts, you know, we just gravitate towards each other, <laughs> I find. But yeah, you got, the, you got the full tour, man. We went for a curry, didn't we? And I pointed out the ice stadium where Jimmy Savile had his last uh, wrestling match. Absolutely. When he got his bollocks kicked up into him by Adrian Street. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we went past the place where uh, Brian Harvey got scalped. Yeah, yeah. I showed you where Sheik were formed. Yeah, where they yeah they had their momentous meeting in the um, in the hotel, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we went past the building where Paper Lace's silver disc was. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's yeah. not for nothing to the call Nottingham, the cradle of pop. Yes. <laughs> but you know, while you while you're touting your book about David, are you still doing that? By the way, is it or is the shilling over? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, obviously not that we're up to Christmas, um, but I've got a couple of like sort of tasty European trips lined up for this year. Going to Oslo at the end of February and um, nice and Madrid a bit later on, and because there's going to be a Good Spanish Lord. edition. Um, so um, yeah, you know, it, it's and also I've been shortlisted. Oh no! Long listed, I should say, for the um, Pendrin um, Music Book Prize, which apparently is no. the Mercury Music Prize of books. Except it isn't quite Love there. That. but it's some pretty stiff competition there. I've been a lot of good music books this year. Actually, nah, fuck them. <laughs> you'll you'll smash it, mate. Uh, so I'm just practicing my false modesty, you know, for when the good lad supreme good accolade lad. is awarded. But um, while all that was going on, David, you know, one of your old books kind of like rose a hand from the grave, didn't it? It did, yes. It, it kind of popped up from history. So um, it's yeah, bizarre. Tell the story, David. So, yeah. So, anyway, in 2011, I published this book called The Prince Charles Letters. It was around the time that he was in the papers for kind of like penning these kind of furious green ink missives and screeds to um, MPs and what have you. And so I had the kind of slightly Henry Root-inspired idea of um, it, this being extended to him writing to people from all walks of life, you know, various celebrities. Um, you know, um, sports people, musicians, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. 
So um, anyway, yeah, so so this is the um, Express Online. Apparently, they've got a sort of pseudo-royal correspondent. And what he does is... Let's, he, shall we name him? Yes, it's it's um it's it's Matthew Kirkham, I think. Matthew Kirkham. Matthew Kirkham, that's Fucking, right. And oh, um, hang your head in shame, young man. And now, what he does is quite a sneaky thing. He does. There's obviously loads of books, like you know, written about the royal family of the years. You know, fairly kind of sort of tidbitty stuff or whatever. Um, inevitably, um, they go out of print. So he kind of like goes around. You know, he gets all these things about a penny or whatever off Amazon, flicks through them, finds kind of obscure stories about the royal family, and then presents them as fresh gossip. And mm. one of the books he actually picked up in this instance was the Prince Charles Letters. Now, yes. I just find it extraordinary. I'm not one of these people that tries to sort of pass off fake news or everything. You are meant to realise that this is a spoof. The word spoof features mm. very prominently on the cover. And, you know, there's a cartoon image of Prince Charles. I mean, um, it ought yeah. to be fairly obvious to anybody remotely sentient that this is a spoof. Um, yes. But what he did is, is and this was happening for several days. I was only alerted to it yeah. about the seventh day. They've been running like full stories with headlines and images of like, of these ex, um, exclusive, all these stories about Prince Charles's correspondence, including in particular, and this is the one that was alerted. You know, there was letters to Lady Gaga. There was yes. um, John Major saying I had no idea who he was. Spice Girls. Spice Girls, all these kind of people. And then one that he supposedly wrote in 1977 to um, Johnny Rotten about the time of God Save the Queen. I have the article in front of me. Let me read it. Right, yeah. Royal plea, plea in <laughs> capitals in big letters, how Prince Charles begged Sex Pistols frontman, don't attack my mother. Prince Charles wanted to take the brickbats for his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, thank God they told me who she was. I'd have never known. After the Sex Pistols launch a famous punk song coinciding with the Queen's Jubilee celebrations in 1977. Uh, he did a few paragraphs of, uh, of of drivel, and then he got he went straight to the meat in a book titled "The Prince Charles Letters," compiled by David Stubbs, reveals what Charles wrote in the letter. I cannot ask you to suppress your free speech. Might I then suggest that instead of attacking my mother on this her most special occasion, that I place myself in her stead? I realise you're an angry young man. I get angry myself sometimes, so I know exactly how you feel. Indeed, Charles had other lyrical ideas for the song, which he (laughs) willfully expressed in the letter. According to Charles, it might run as follows. God bless the prince. Let's make him into mince. He's got stupid stick-out ears. Gets his kicks shooting deers. (laughs) Printed on the Daily Express website as news. Mm, mm. Hurrah for British journalism in 2018 stroke 19. It's it's just extraordinary. I mean, first of all, did they not show the remotest curiosity in how this David Stubbs fellow sort of came by this sort of huge cash it letters? No. You know, I mean, it's just extraordinary. No, what did I do? Do I work sort of, you know, undercover in a kind of postal room at Buckingham Palace yes. and to set these sort of missives? I mean, it, it's, it's um, yeah. you know, there's no curiosities expressed about that or me at all, you know, which is a little bit bizarre. But secondly, you would have thought that, like, you know, before, between, like, conception and these things arriving in print, that these... This would have to pass, you know, under sort of two or three sets of eyes. And there isn't anybody, apparently, at the Express who just think, are you sure no. about this? <laughs> no, they just shit it out nowadays, don't no, no. they? No, it's glorious, glorious. Yeah, you make, glorious. make a, lot of, yeah. make a, lot, a lot of connections 30 years ago, writing about Front 242 <laughs> and ARKs. <laughs> our, our group, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, it's <laughs> the worst thing about it is the it's like a bit of an insult as well because it's like so. I said you do realise that was that's that's a funny book that's supposed to be a, a joke. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I didn't laugh. Yeah, I know exactly. I mean, there was part of me that's slightly hurt actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that, this is the thing, isn't it? There's so much satire mm-hmm. floating about mm-hmm. on the internet now. It yeah. gets to the point where well. This can't be this can't be satire because it's not funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not talking about this. Mm. I'm talking about all the other all the other bollocks. Yeah, yeah. But let it be known, David, I actually stuck my hand into the shit bucket that is the comment section on the Express website, <laughs> and a twat off the internet wrote, "Nobody, and I mean not one person, can ever say that the royal family don't generate income. If they didn't." Trashy writers like the alleged author of the latest attempt to cash in wouldn't be able to make money at the first opportunity they could by writing such a book. Two exclamation marks. <laughs> that's you put that's in one. your box. It was, that's right. It's very, yes, yes. Most chastised I am, yes. <laughs> so, New Year, first new episode of 2019, first order of business is to thank the pop-crazed youngsters who have piled onto Patreon and filled our G-strings full of lovely dollars. The latest batch includes Andy Cox, Lomax Fairchild, OPEC Dreams, Sylvain, Mike Gibbons, Andrew Warrington, Bad AIDS, Mark Savage, Joseph Nawaz, Matt Hall, Paul Flat, Simon Fucking Love. That's his name, not me being rude. James Noble. Big shout to Dr. Greggles who knocked his pledge up. Don't forget, Pop Crazy Youngsters, you can do that anytime you like. Chris Stanley. James Watson. Happy birthday, Hannah. Paul Anthony Edward. Derek Sullivan. James Wharton. James Tink. Callum Forcer. All those people stepped up to the pay window and they dropped some lovely dollar on us. Thank you so fucking much. Come on, thank them, you ungrateful bastards. Oh, well, yes, oh, yes, thank yes, thank you indeed. Thanks, thanks, thanks for so. Uh, yes. <laughs> and don't forget, all you got to do is get them little fingers on the keyboard, www.patreon.com slash chartmusic. And if you're doing that, and if you're in our club, you can vote on the top ten. Here it is. Hit my fucking music. A new entry at number ten for the gummy woman. Oh, A re-entry at number nine. It's the Sikh lad out of Show Waddy Waddy. Number eight for the third week running for Bomber Dog. Still clinging on at number seven, here comes Jism. New entry, straight in at number six, Oasis. Up one place to number five, it's Granny Wants Your Spunk. Down from number one to number four, Taylor Parks's 20 romantic moments. This week's highest new entry, straight in at number three, The Alligators with Tits. <laughs> Up one place to number two, Fred Westlife, which means. The brand new chart music number one, Your Dark Mates. Wow. And they did all that without the support of Daytime Radio 1 or the music press. Yeah, your dark mates apparently they've been confirmed for Glastonbury already, which is uh, it's going to cause problems. I think Oasis aren't, aren't going gonna to be impressed by that, are they? 
Obviously, there is a conspiracy that to get into the chart music top 10 these days, one has by law to be your dark mate. Yes. So those new bands, The Gummy Woman, what, what's The Gummy Woman sound like? Uh, catfish and the Bottle right. Men. Good, good. It's the Catfish and the Bottle Men rip-off yeah. band. I, the Alligators with Tits, I see them as an all-female psychobilly band who were built like brick shithouses. Yeah. Yeah, sporting They'd cramps be fucking brilliant to see me. Not another one. <laughs> what I want to know is who's still buying Bummer Dog in 2019. Yeah. He's got a loyal fan base, man. Good to see the, the sequel yeah. from Show Waddy Waddy, not a one-hit wonder. <laughs> so don't forget, get on Patreon, chuck us some dollar. No, well, you know, dollars are fine, you know, but at this moment in time, I think tins might be a bit more necessary. But you can't, you can't send them through Patreon yet, so we'll yeah. accept... A, a proper currency. By the way, what happened to one intestine? One intestine yeah. just dropped, man. They just—it's just over for them already. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. They, they need some documentary, I think, mm. where they reunite <laughs> and run it over Christmas. Reunite. Now then, pop crazy youngsters, we covered a lot of landmark episodes in Top of the Pops last year, and we're going to start big star with 2019 because. This may well be the most important episode ever. This episode, Pop Crazy Youngsters, takes us all the way back to October the 11th, 1979. Because this episode we're going to watch right here was the most watched episode of Top of the Pops ever. Long story short. In July of 1979, three broadcasting unions were offered a 9% pay rise by the companies who made up the ITV network. All three unions, however, chucked it back in ITV's faces and told them to fuck off, as was the style in the 70s. After weeks of negotiations, which saw the deal rising to 15%, members of the ACTT, the Technicians Union, walked out at Thames Television on the 6th of August after their shop steward was suspended leading to all three unions downing tools, going on strike and shutting down almost all of the ITV network for 10 weeks, leaving the field clear for the two BBC channels. Oh, chaps, do you remember this? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I primarily remember the ITV thing because of Coronation Street. Um Coronation Street in yeah. 79, it was certainly it was the best. It was the funniest thing that ITV were producing, you know, way funnier than any of its um, sitcoms. Um, and um, if it weren't for Coronation Street, I might not even have noticed the strike at all. Yeah, I think this could be my favourite industrial dispute ever. Yeah. <laughs> because when you're a kid, you know, all strikes are uh, interesting and, and a bit fun. I, I remember all the power cuts of 1973, oh, yeah, yeah. 1974, and they were dead exciting, weren't they? They were. Oh, they were great times. I remember yeah, being huddled yeah. up in the living room with me, uh, with my mum and dad, you know, drinking a soup, huddling up uh, with a mm. candle, and it was it was fucking great. That was. It was. It was. It was great. It was. It was. It was great for families. Actually, yeah. yeah we, we 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 too were huddled around a candle. We we played parlour games. Yeah. In our actual parlour, you know, like word games and stuff like that. We had a right. Yeah, it was time. just like Christmas again, wasn't it? It was, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, kind of missing, really, you know. Yeah, we need a power cut every now and then, don't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was less to be powered, though, back then, obviously. I mean, a power cut nowadays, you, you just fucked, aren't you? No internet. Yeah. Well, that's it, no internet, you fucked. 
Yeah, I mean, the trouble is, you know, you can even in a, you occasionally you'll get the odd power cut, but yeah, you've got recourse. You've got any kind of battery on your phone or whatever, you can just sort of huddle around that. But yeah. um, I did have a mate um, called Simon Threadgold, and um, he, he lived in they lived, he lived in middle class splendor. He was a cut above the likes of me, mm. and he had a little kind of sort of five inch portable black and white telly, so we're able to kind of par around his place and watch match of the day. Mm. And uh, you know that that was that was luxurious. Yeah. Taylor, can you remember this story? Yeah, I used to sit and watch that blue screen that they used to show oh, yes. in place of programmes. Because it was just what was on the, all the day. The blue screen of death. Yeah, it was just a blue screen with white text saying, piss off, no telly, go and watch one man and his dog, you cunt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, words to that effect. It, yeah, yeah, it might have yeah. been the Aneedin line, but it was one or the other. Um, and yeah, we felt like kids in the blitz, you know, playing on bomb sites. We were deprived, but we were making our own fun, you know, and it was there for weeks. We we were deprived of Gideon and uh, a magpie instead of food. Yeah, we had a girl at my school called Gideon. Um, Oh no! Well, that was her nickname because she had a really long neck, which uh, I can't help but feel somewhat missed the point of the programme Gideon. Um, Mm. But... Yeah, what can you do with kids? But yeah, I mean, in our house, you know, as I've said before, we were an ITV household, and and it was absolute crisis. But particularly for me, Dad, you know, I remember him coming home from work, getting in the house, turning over from BBC One to ITV, seeing the blue screen of death, swearing at going to the pub earlier. <laughs> from my point of view, it was fucking brilliant because, you know, it, it meant that I could actually come downstairs and watch Top of the Pops on a Thursday night. Because what are you going to do, Dad? Going to watch a blue screen or are you going to watch whatever shit's on BBC Two? No, mate, you're in my world now. Yeah. <laughs> so that so that was great, man. I got in I got in so much Top of the Pops watching it in colour. Because it had a portable upstairs, but it was black and white. And it had a coat hanger stuck in the in the top of it. So reception wasn't that good, but I got I got to see Pop in as near to crystal clear clarity as anyone could have in nineteen seventy nine. So yeah, I lo- I love the ITV strike. Yeah. It's funny we talk about ITV people and it was definitely there was a weird sort of sense of a class marker or whatever. And I was conscious because you know in this sort of elaborate stratification of the UK, I came from a family that was probably lower middle class as opposed to working class. Mm. There was a working class people who lived on the adjacent council estate. And um, the thing about being low middle class is that you really had to kind of sort of invest so much in being low middle class that you were always kind of on your uppers, really. Mm. Whereas the working classes, they seem to have a bit more disposable income, you know, and it just it all kind of signifies. So, yeah. So it seemed to me like, you know, working class. I, I class envy. I envy the working classes. They got uh. to eat fish and chips and watch Magpie. Yeah. And for me, it was beans on toast and blue Peter oh, because, maybe. you know, that was my class obligation. And of course, you know, the ITV strike left the field clear for the BBC. Although an urban legend sprang up and it was actually commented on by Keith Waterhouse in this day's Daily Mirror that up to a million people were still watching ITV every night. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> David, you're, uh, you're, you're Yorkshire Television, weren't you, at the time? Oh, I, yeah, yeah. They linked yeah. up with the, uh, with the local police and they were running um, captioned appeals to find the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, yes, yes, of course, yes, because he was still at large. Um, he was, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's strange, really, when they eventually caught the Yorkshire Ripper, and you know, people just, you know, people just sort of looking around, and just think he has this kind of almost like like Frank Zappa or something like that. He has this kind of iconic mm. sort of appearance. Every bloke in Yorkshire looked like the Yorkshire Ripper at that point. My maths yes. teacher looked like the Yorkshire <laughs> Ripper, or whatever. You know, it's just like he was that was just standard bloke at that time. People yeah. forget. Yeah, everyone had a everyone had a tux and a dicky bow. Yeah, but yeah, at all times. <laughs> 
Yeah. Around about this time, there's an amazing photo of Peter with. Um, when he was playing at Forest, <laughs> and he's he's gone to the local um, coiffure centre, uh, and Mr Raymond or whatever he's called, he's there and he's styling him, and he is the dead spit of the Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> you know, I'm just surprised he's not fucking behind his back hitting him with a fucking hammer. <laughs> but you know, we, we we're having a good chuckle about no ITV being on, and yeah, of course, you know, if that happened nowadays, who'd give a fuck? Mm. You know, it, it, when it's in a year that there's no uh, international football on. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, let's let's not forget the, the, the cultural dowry that was lost due to ITV being on strike. Here's a list of some of the things that either were massively delayed or cancelled completely. <clears throat> the first series of Cannon and Ball. Mm. A whole series of the Dinsdale London sitcom Pig in the Middle. <laughs> <laughs> you know that one where he's a he's a kind of like a, an illustrator, but he illustrates with a puppet. Oh, that one! He's got his hand up a big puppet's arse, and the uh, pen or whatever's in the puppet's mouth. Right, and you know he's debating whether to shag Lisa Goddard or not. Huh. <laughs> the remake of the Glums with Ian Lavender and Patricia Brake. A new series of the comedians. Oh, all those new jokes we lost. <laughs> a Patty Boulet one-hour special. <sighs> and last, and probably most importantly, a cranky sitcom. Oh, dear. oh can you imagine what that would be like? Yeah. yeah, like the Cranky's electronic comic, but ahead of time. When yeah. they were, you know, a bit more in their prime. Yeah. 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 I don't know. BBC should have just taken the piss, shouldn't they? Like, all that time well, yeah. that ITV were off the air, they should have only shown, like, repeats of On The Move and uh, yes. Churchill's yes. People and uh, <laughs> and Head You, like, at prime time yes. on the whole network on a Saturday night. Yeah. So, and now on BBC yeah. One, in a change from the advertised programme, <laughs> Albert Pierpoint explores the slate quarries of Britain. Yes. <laughs> this programme is in black and white. Well, they could, they could have gone even further than that. They could have had Nationwide and they could have had Bob Welling saying, well, you know, we, we were going to go around the regions and do this and do that, but I'm going to take my shirt off instead. I'm going to I'm going to put some BBC Canteen trifle on my nipple and I'm going to spend the next three quarters of an hour trying to lick it off. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to what? You're going to talk to each other or go out and, and have hobbies? No, you're British. Yeah. It's 1979. Shut the fuck up, sit down, watch me lick cream off my nips. Because <laughs> you know what no telly means? An enforced game of Scrabble. Mm, yeah. In a kind of a horrible silence, a weird silence with just the clock ticking mm. in the background while you sit there, stare at the wall. Jesus, I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. I was from a, a, a similarly lower middle class family and the thing in those days that characterised the English lower middle class was this desire for improvement mm. uh, without really the cultural wherewithal. To, so, so like my dad would say, uh, to, to make sure the TV was off for at least a bit every night. Right. right. Was, uh, um, but we wouldn't do anything else. There, there, like we wouldn't sort of, you know, sit and read improving books or anything. We just, you know, it was just boring. Yeah. And to make matters worse, he'd, uh, he'd point at the TV and say, can we have it off, please? <laughs> Which, you know, when you're about 10, you don't, yeah, that's, you know, that's a, a B 
big mistake mm, yeah. for your dad to say that. No, it's all but, about it's all about the telly, isn't it? I mean, join the join the power cuts when I was about four or five. Whenever they are, one thing I loved to do was put a cardboard box on my head and do party political broadcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, you know, the rest of my family would just get on with the business of huddling round a candle. And I'd just be there just rabbiting on, just talking complete bollocks. Oh, he's happy enough. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems so hilarious now, looking back, that a third of British TV yeah. could just be forced off the air mm. for months because... They wouldn't give technicians a 350% pay rise or yes. whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, I know the rate of inflation was absurdly high at the time, but we're still talking about pay rises well in excess of inflation. And at this remove, it's very strange because on the one hand, it makes your heart swell with pride, you know, mm. to see the unions taking the piss. Because yeah, especially as ITV could actually afford it, as it, as it turned out. But taking a more pragmatic, long-term view, you do find yourself thinking, yeah, thanks, lads. I'm sure this this blatant provocation will have no comeback whatsoever. (laughs) Certainly nothing which might end up impacting in a negative way on your brothers in the future mm. um i mean it is it's sort of that's wonderful the Brit- that's the british race the bottom mentality though isn't it yes. yeah. yeah it's it it's 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 Can't get around it, you know. it's sort of wonderful country. the the insanity of this or to look at it another way the sanity of it mm. um but at the same time when you when you look closely at the tv unions in the 70s you have to be something more than a socialist to think that this was a healthy or sustainable situation. Uh, You do have to be a bit of a nut because, um, let's face it, the rotting edifice of capitalism was not going to be brought down by the transitional demands of the bloke who put the lights up for Metal Mickey. (laughs) And it's... So you do have to consider it to just be piss-taking. But Mm. then again, it's preferable to today when you might go and do some work on TV and not get paid at all. Oh, fucking hell, yeah. The question is the extent to which this madness helped to facilitate that madness Mm. and the extent to which that could have been foreseen. Yeah, but, you know, those people who do that for nothing, they're they're, they're getting exposure, aren't they? They're putting their name about as, as someone who do stuff for nothing. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a good reputation to have. Yeah, because you've had, you've had that experience, haven't you, David? Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. The Today program. Yeah, you know, they asked me to come on, not to promote anything, you know, because it'd be fair enough if you promote a book or something like that to um, to provide content. Um, yeah, you know, but this is yeah, I was I was there to provide content. I was there um, to talk about the relationship between music and politics on the back of something that I'd written. Mm. Um, but it wasn't. It, yeah, and 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 initially they said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody said, "Oh yeah, they do pay, you know, today on Radio Four, seventy quid or something like that." Yeah. So I approached him about this, and then he came back. The guy that I've been lazing with and says, "I'm sorry, I've spoken to my producer, and um, he has um, told me we do have a policy of not paying contributors." And the way he said it was almost Fucking like a kind no. of moral thing. It's just like not paying for sex or something like that. And it's just like, Christ, this is actually extraordinary. We, said, we do, however, send round, um, you know, a taxi. You know, we'll take you there and back. And I presume, you know, the cabbie's been paid, isn't he? You know, he's not doing it for exposure in the cab tray. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm about 52 at the time. It's just like, you know, I'm not really apprentice, you know, no. an intern. It's still quite a recent thing, isn't it? Because I can remember the, like, the turn of the century and I was still still in London. <clears throat> and I got a phone call in, inviting me up to go on Central Weekend, that fantastic bear pit 
that was on every Friday night. They basically wanted to appear on a live TV programme and say that tantric sex was a load of bollocks. <laughs> and I went, yeah, I can do that. They paid me a fee. They sent a, a chauffeur down in a Mercedes to pick me up outside of my office at six o'clock. They took me to Lenton, which is just on the outskirts of Nottingham. They chucked me in a green room and, and tipped loads of beer down me. And I, I'd say, tell you, central weekend uh, green rooms, best piss up I've ever had in my life. Mm. The other subjects were, is Satanism all right? <laughs> and people who kind of like um, spend loads of money on making their dogs look like famous people. Mm. So I ended up on a table getting absolutely battered with a vicar, a rabbi, two Satanists and a woman who'd made a dog to look like Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) Right? I go on for 10 minutes, have this massive argument with a load of people. Afterwards, back in the green room for another couple of hours, so I got really fucking K-line with Claudia Winkleman. (laughs) And then... Uh, I said to them, look, you know, I I actually come from Nottingham. You know, I won't need a a lift back to London that night. You know, I'll go and crash around my mum's for the weekend. And they said, all right then, well, how about this? When you want to go back, which was Sunday afternoon, the same chauffeur picked me up outside my mum's house and took me home. That's fantastic. That's how it should be. Mm. I'm talent, I'll have you know. (laughs) Yeah. I have a fee. Yeah, absolutely. Cat. Talent with a capital T. Less of uh, reflecting upon the glory years of, of me, and more about the glory years of Top of the Pops, because this episode pulled in an estimated 19,450,000 people, making it the most watched Top of the Pops episode ever. Take that, blue screen. <laughs> that is almost double its regular audience in 1979. It's over 4 million more than what Coronation Street and Crossroads was pulling down, and they were the two biggest watch shows on television at the time. And it's 3 million more than the combined viewing figures in the UK at 6pm on September the 11th, 2001. Terrestrial audience in any case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, Andy Peebles wasn't involved with that. Peebles factor. Yeah. Well, as far as as far as we know, <laughs> that was only the 18th most watched program that week. It was one below Doctor Who, hey. one above International Show Jumping, and the top show that week to the Manor Born was watched by 24 million people, the same amount as the England Croatia semi final last oh, year. Yeah. That was a that was a very popular show because everyone yeah. could identify yeah. with that character. You see, because yeah. we've all <laughs> yes. we've all been cheated out of our manner. <laughs> essentially, by a spiv. We all want to fuck Peter Bowles, don't <laughs> that we? That as well, yeah. Yeah. And we all have a, we all, we all have a, a, a shambling brabinger in our lives somewhere. <laughs> I never watched it because actually at this time I just mm. pretty much boycotted television, actually. I was just up in my room listening to cool. records. Oh. I would take out a record out of its sleeve, put it on the record player, sit, listen to it, do nothing else but listen to it, turn it over, play the other side give it my undivided attention, and then do the same thing over and over. We we on drugs. You tell the young people that, and they don't believe you, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah. OMG, mind blown. Radio 1 News. So, in the news this week, Jeremy Thorpe announces his retirement from politics... The Tory party conference in Blackpool has spent the day discussing hanging and flogging young offenders. Ed Koch, 
the mayor of New York announces a scheme to deter prostitution by broadcasting the names of convicted curb crawlers on local radio. Oh, fucking hell, why didn't they do that here? Can you imagine if Tony Blackburn did that every week? The, the, the top ten curb crawlers. <laughs> David Pleat. Anna Ford and Jon Snow announced that they've cancelled their forthcoming wedding. <laughs> Nottingham Forest draw one all with Stoke Sitter and leapfrog Man United at the top of Division 1. Fucking yes. Are you sure that was... Oh, yeah, I suppose it would be in 1979, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, Champions of, of fucking Europe. Yes, all right, yes, yes, I remember. But the big news this week is that the Stranglers have organised a charity cricket match against a team of writers and broadcasters with the help of Eddie Grant, Motorhead and the Damned and cheated by having as many as 40 people on the field at the same time. Oh, man. (laughs) Did they make the sandwiches as well for tea? Oh, God. Rubbing a pork pie into their crotch like a cricket ball. (laughs) I was actually once um, asked to play in a celebrity team because, the, as you can imagine, it was a bit of a kind of porridge film situation. Yes. Diddy David Hamilton didn't turn up something. So I had to pull out the numbers. And um, there was just the only actual celebrities who turned up for this team that I was in. We were playing Wimbledon at Plough Lane, you know, the old Wimbledon setup, you know, so Dennis right. Wise, Vinnie Jones, or whatever, and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. Bobby, Bobby Gould as manager. Yeah, and we did that sort of point. We had about 30 on our team at one point. It didn't make any difference. So they just passed it around among themselves most of the time. Um, the only celebrities Ooh. that turned up were um, Eddie Kidd and Richard Jobson and then wow. none entities like me um, and I scored as well I actually scored well, I actually turned a couple of Wimbledon defenders didn't they were a bit of a half-hearted effort. and then what when fast Vinnie Jones who was in goal and um, didn't, even, didn't even bother diving for it and then Bobby Gould, who was manager, he sort of trotted back and says well struck lad well struck you know and, oh. and that was the happiest moment of my life good lord on the cover of the enemy this week The Clash on the cover of Smash Hits this week, Squeeze. The number one LP is The Pleasure Principle by Gary Newman. And over in America, the US number one is Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson. And the number one LP is In Through the Outdoor by Led Zeppelin. So, me boys, what were we doing in October of 1979? Well, um... I was a very intense young man indeed. Um, mm. I would have t- just turned in October. Yeah, I would have just turned seventeen. And uh, Ooh, there is, there is you a, know what I mean. Yep, indeed. And uh, there's a black and white photo of me. I think around this time, um, in a kind of sort of school uniform, grey pullover and grey shirt, no tie. You know, sort of ripped that off as a moment I came in the door, staring mm. maniacally underneath a sort of burgeoning Philokis type fringe into the camera. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was a sort of very eccentric, very sort of slightly monastic um, young man, slightly crazy. Mad David. Yeah. I was listening to... Yeah. A black and white photo. I know. Oh, yeah. A black and white photo <laughs> no, Polaroid. It wasn't like the working classes. The, it was the a Deguero type. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, um, I, I no, and I was just I was going through all kinds of weird phases. You know, I was into Captain Beefheart, Faust, Sun Ra, Stockhausen. Um, I remember like playing Faust, and my dad, um, you know, it was it was a song called "It's a Rainy Day Sunshine Girl," and it starts with this primitive rhythm, doom 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 doom. And I was playing that in my room. My dad came hurtling up the stairs. He was convinced the central eating was on the blink, you know, and the boy was bloody hell, it's a David and his music. Um, yeah, yeah, very <laughs> intense. But it was a very sort of, I mean, Leeds, you mentioned you know, the Yorkshire Ripper. And I 
mean, you know, I think David Pease has done a good job in those novels of sort of like catching a sense of the sheer toxicity of West Yorkshire at that time, you know. And mm. I was born in, I was actually born in London and moved up to Leeds and never yeah, really said, considered myself. You've said, you're not a real Yorkshireman, we know, David. Good, good, yep. <laughs> <laughs> And um, and I mean the toxicity of the place. I don't I don't even told this story before. Um, but um, <laughs> my 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 younger brother um, he went along to um, a stag do for one of his mates, Gary, yeah. something like that. And um, you know he was just a sort of a friend, you know, kind of friend friends almost. But um, anyway, what happened is Gary's immediate mates and you know, they said, "All right, Gary, you know, we're going to get like strippergram for night, okay?" And um, you know, so no, you know, you know, being full and all that, but um, you know, you're gonna have to like be blindfolded. All right? That's that's just only condition, all right? You know, it's gonna be good for them, oh, but no. um, don't worry, it's gonna involve this blindfold. Yeah, all right, all right, you know. So anyway, you know, oh, no. I know where this is going. And um, <laughs> the um, the um, you know, so the strippergram is kind of actually Gary's all blindfolded. <laughs> you know, they're sitting on top of the table. The music gets going. She starts kind of you know dancing a bit, kind of rubbing up against him. Whatever, it's all getting a bit kind of. Oh, God, at which know. point they take off his blindfold. It's his mother. No! Oh, I didn't know where that was going at all. <laughs> Fucking hell. And I mean, you know, that raises so many questions about <laughs> who broached the subject with whom. You know, did the Fuck. mother approach his yeah. mates? Did his mates approach Gary's mother or whatever? But, you know, it's, it's shocking stuff. And I mean, you know, and I mean, it's, I don't think even David Peace could have made that up. But there you go. No. <laughs> so you haven't been in a pub with David in the last five years. I have heard that story before. But what I've never asked is, was his mum actually a strippergram? Or was she just doing it for the day? No, 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 no. I just pretend just playing yeah. the role, you know, for the night. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I I can't match that because I was seven in 1979. <laughs> but yeah, I remembered recently. I had a, a, a flash of memory recently, and I remembered saying to my dad, "Am I really seven? We were walking down the street in, uh, I think it was in Birmingham. Yeah. Are we? Am I really seven? Because I couldn't quite believe I was that old already. <laughs> I couldn't believe I'd mm. made it yeah. to that grand old age. Uh, it, was like <laughs> it was time to put my little legs right. up on the poof, film a pipe, and reminisce, you know, with my little mates. Do you remember Leslie Judd? <laughs> what what happened to her? Eh? Yeah, no, it's amazing <laughs> yes. how time flies. Um, but. Really, I was just, I was just living inside the changing times in a way that we, as old men, are mm. no longer able to do. Music-wise, um, though, was music tickling you? Whatever could be sort of legally tickled of a seven-year-old. Yeah, but I wasn't really a record buyer. Yet. No, in fact, I'd, I mean, I'd been bought some records. I'd been bought. Uh, the theme from Rainbow Whoa. with the bit on it that you didn't hear on the TV. It was the re it was a re-recording by the group Telltale. Right, uh, yes, I've heard that uh, one. Yeah, they, really, they they kind of rock really out, nice. don't they? Yeah, it's there's a sort of like uh, acid folk uh, feel mm. to it. Um, and I had Father Christmas, Do Not Touch Me by the yes. Goodies, which is a bit inappropriate. Mm. Um, Did you ever play that song when it wasn't Christmas though, Taylor? You know, like always oh, July, gonna whack me. Goody's song on. I'm not sure. I can't remember if it was the A side or the B side. It, that was the B side for the Christmas. I night. did. I did. On the other side was uh, the In Betweenies. Yes. Yeah. Things I hate. Bill Oddie's music. I'm not a, <laughs> a, a big Goody's fan anyway, but I hate Bill Oddie's music. It was it's what puts me off that. Series. Oh come on! His version of Oakley Marlboro Tats fucking amazing. Yeah. 
It really is. is. Was that, is that in the Joe Cocker style? Is <laughs> yes. That, yeah, yes. right, okay, yeah. Maybe he is a genius after all. I just started secondary school. Already by this point, about, I don't know, three or four weeks in, I fucking hated it. Because I had the worst first day at school that anyone could possibly have. <laughs> Even before school had started, I'd gone down to the paper shop in my new crisp black blazer with a burgundy uh, badge and tie. And uh, I ran into a, a couple of mates from my old class at junior school who'd gone to Bigwood, which was the new secondary school on the other side of the estate. And uh, I said hello to them, and they just knocked me down and kicked the fuck out of me because I was wearing a different colour blazer to them. And then I got into school, and we're all queuing up. I'm talking to someone, and the deputy head, who is this angry little Welshman, just dragged me out and says, I don't know your name yet, but I'm watching you. And then round about dinner time, uh, I had a couple of mates who were a few years up from me, and they dared me to go up to this fifth-year girl and chat her up. And I did, and then I realised that she was actually a very small teacher. (laughs) So, yeah, great start. And then a week later... Did you get anywhere um, with her? (laughs) Well, he's nodding a minute. (laughs) When I was at junior school, I was, you know, I, I was pretty advanced. You know, we had maths boxes. We had a box of work that would last the whole year. And there were four of them, but there was a fifth box that was locked up in the uh, in the headmistress's study uh, that no one had ever opened. You know, it still had the cellophane on it. And I made it my life's work to kill box four and get stuck into box five before I left junior school. And I did. And the morning that box five was opened, all the other teachers were there kind of like peeking around the door watching somebody open this mythical fifth box. It was like something out of Pokemon or something. I don't know what they were expecting. But when I got to uh, secondary school, it's like, oh, uh, your handwriting is not very good and we want to take you down a peg or two. So we're going to put you in basic skills, which was alongside, you know, some people who couldn't even fucking breathe, never mind (laughs) read or write. And I, I I just immediately resented that. And I just thought, well, you know, here I am in a fucking class sharing a book um, with, with somebody else who can't read as fast as me. And uh, yeah, fuck this. And, you know, that set me on the path of leaving school with no O-levels. Yeah, yeah. Me yeah. and Lady Di were just the same. Mm. <laughs> on the upside... We just got a dog called Rex, who was fucking brilliant. He was the best dog ever, this mongrel. And I do have I do have a very good story about him, which is up there with Bummer Dog, but I'm saving it for right. the opposite moment. Yeah, yeah keep something in reserve. Well, it's probably even more grotesque than Bummer Dog, actually. Well, well yeah, it oh, is cool. actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on that until I, I need it. <laughs> so, what else was on telly today? Well... BBC One starts the day with schools programmes. And then there's golf from the Suntory World Match Play Championship. Then the news, Pebble Mill at one, the flumps and you and me before more golf. Then play school, Deputy Dog, the 3000th episode of Jack and Aura. They're doing The Hobbit. The all-new Popeye show. Blue Peter looks at the Battle of Hastings. Noah and Nelly. Then the news, Nationwide. Trifle off the nipples. Regional news in your area, and they've just finished, what else? Tomorrow's World. B 
BBC Two begins with coverage from the Tory party conference, then play school, then more swivel-eyed hang and flog em arseholes action, then the golf, then the latest episode of Cunts in Blackpool, <laughs> then a couple of hours of the Open University, and they've just finished highlights from the Scone Palace carriage driving tournament. Oh, they don't give a fuck, do they, BBC? <laughs> ITV is in a coma, but there is one region still broadcasting. Channel. It was basically decided between the management and the unions that if Channel stopped for one moment, it would just die on its arse. So, yeah, they were allowed to carry on. They've started at 20 past one with the news, and then it shut down until 5pm, and recommences with Puffin's birthday greetings, Woody Woodpecker, The Lone Ranger, and News Report Extra. They're 20 minutes into emergency which is either a documentary series or an actual real-life emergency. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Well, but, yeah, Channel, Channel Islands. Yeah, Channel Islands, Matt. If, if Channel didn't get any advertising, they'd, they'd just die. Yeah, well, I mean, what is an emergency on the Channel Islands? <laughs> yes. If it's too big for Bergerac to handle, then uh, yeah. Yeah, we really are in trouble. Yeah. You can see why the strike didn't apply there, because it's not Britain, is it? Ooh. That's the thing. But, I mean, you know... ITV not being on striking channel meant those lucky people got more Bennis of Millbrook adverts. <laughs> Nothing was going to deny those uh, traitorous Channel Island cunts their uh, <laughs> nightly dose of barked prices of two litre bottles of woodpecker cider. <laughs> Essentially, if you don't know what Bennies of Millbrook adverts are like, you're not using the internet properly. So you can either go online, go on YouTube, Bennies of Millbrook, B-E-N-E-S-T-S of Millbrook, or you can go straight to the fucking source. One word, chip steaks. <laughs> you will come to regard them as a very special treat. Chip steaks. <laughs> Chipsticks! <laughs> Tremendous protein value. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not get <laughs> we can't think of it. Yes, yes, yes. Just saying the things. All right, then, Pop Craze Young says it's time to go deep on October of 1979. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Top of the Pops. And let's straight away have a look at this week's brand new Top 30. The show begins with a black screen with an overlaid oblong in the top right-hand corner to reveal a bloke we've never seen before in a grey suit, wishing us a good evening and plunging straight into the top 30. That man is Andy Peebles. Born in London in 1948, Andy Peebles was the son of a head postmaster who trained as a hotel manager in Bournemouth in the 60s before being spotted DJing at a college dance and being offered a job at a local nightclub. After DJing at the Scotch of St James in London and the Hard Rock in Manchester, he landed his first radio gig at BBC Manchester in 1973. A year later, he defected to Piccadilly Radio, the brand new local independent station in Manchester, as the presenter of Andy Peebles' Soul 
train. Christ. In December of 1978, he made the leap to Radio 1 when that station completely split from Radio 2 and he was gifted the weekday 8 to 10 in the evening slot. A month before this episode was aired, he replaced Tony Blackburn in the 2 to 4.30 slot in the week and this is his first ever gig on Top of the Pops. Fucking hell. I mean, it's just <laughs> extraordinary, isn't it? I, I'm trying to think of like I'm trying to think of who he actually reminds me of. And um, actually, I know Al. You'll certainly get this. Do you remember Paul Bearer? Remember the Undertakers? Yes. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. This is, this yes, is all... he is. Andy Peebles is Paul Bearer. Yeah, Paul Bearer minus the uh, minus the makeup. Um, I mean, poor sod Andy Peebles. He's just as God made him. But um, and I think even he knows Ooh, that you know. Yeah. <laughs> And I think he's conscious, but you know, having said that, it's it's just really rather startling, isn't it? That face that looks like it's been turned yeah. inside out. Um, and yeah. It's extraordinary because it's just like, how did this guy ascend? You know, because as, as we kind of found out, he's yeah. pretty, he's 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 nondescript. I mean, it reminds me of and in, in all kinds of ways. You know, he's inadequate. He reminds me of like a supply teacher or something. I remember when around about this yeah. time, you know, we had a habit in nights. You know, we had a reputation our fifth form of breaking teachers, especially kind of new ones, only sign of weakness. And there was one sort of poor sod, and I think we sort of went to life. You know, we'd do this thing, you know, like we'd have this disgusting habit of tearing bits out of our exercise book and putting them in our gob, and then flicking the kind of sort of you know phlegmy sort of pellet. At teachers, you know, and mm. this this poor sod was one nice. day in which the, he was just completely broken. And I just remember, like, you know, I wasn't even in class, and just he was being showered with these horrible bits of sort of, you know, gobby little exercise book pellets going at him. And and I, I was, and I just that, that's that's you know, Paul Bear, and also you know, this supply teacher we used to have. It's extraordinary. He doesn't seem, and yet he's the guy that got John Lennon's last ever interview my theory is that john lennon actually paid mark chapman to kill him <laughs> just in case he ever had to meet andy peebles ever again <laughs> here he is he's he's uh, he's currently just over a year away mm. from his life having any meaning or importance <laughs> yes, yeah. and just over a year and a month away from it ceasing to have any <laughs> ever again well that's the one thing we know about Andy Peebles that he gave. He did the last ever interview with John Lennon, and it's absolutely wrong because he didn't. Yeah. Andy Peebles did interview John Lennon the night before uh, he died, uh, but the next day, a chap called Dave Sholin from San Francisco's RKO Radio got in there last. Uh-huh. In the book The Lives of John Lennon, written by Albert Goldman, it says that night. John and Yoko gave a long and tedious interview to Andy Peebles of BBC Radio that started at the studio and wound up after midnight at Mr Chow, the Lennons' favourite restaurant. Peebles insisted on dragging John and Yoko through the entire history of their recording career, prompting them from notes like an oral examiner. I love Albert Goldman. He's a yeah. terrible, terrible biographer, mm. but he's a camp New York bitch, mm. and they always yes. write the best books. <laughs> the thing about Andy Peebles, right, you, you're saying he looks like this person, and I don't know who you're talking about. Paul Bearer. Yeah, who is The World Wrestling Federation, or WWE. Yeah. Right, see, this is why I've got no idea what you're talking about. To <laughs> he me, was, he was the he was the manager of the Undertaker, okay. and he had his own funeral parlour, yeah. and he carried around an urn that gave the Undertaker great powers, <laughs> uh, but also carried around an urn that he could smash into the back of the uh, opposite wrestler's head. 
which kind of helped even more, I feel. Wouldn't you get disqualified for that? The referee didn't see it, man. He was, he was sneaker. There's no more disempowered figure, really, than a, a World Wrestling Federation referee. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but also, Paul Bearer shagged The Undertaker's mum. Oh. Um, he's the father of Kane, who's The Undertaker's brother. Uh, who set fire to the house and was horribly disfigured. Also, he was going out with a cheerleader and the car crashed and she died. And uh, apparently he, uh, Kane, shagged her in the coffin. (laughs) You're missing out on a lot if you don't watch WWF, mate. Is this part of the legend or is this something that happened behind the scenes? No, this is true. This is all true, Taylor. I mean, before you go into Andy Peebles... What other Top of the Pops presenters would make great wrestling managers? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I think DLT would be a bit of an enforcer. Mm, mm. Not so much of a manager, but someone who'd just stand there and protect someone like Shawn Michaels. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I put a slightly more demonic Diddy David Hamilton, possibly. Um, yes. Yeah. Mike Reed would be good because you'd just cheer every time he got beaten up. Mm. Kid Jensen on steroids might be a, a, a passable yes. wrestler. Anyway, Taylor, Andy Peebles. Yeah, I don't know about this uh, Paul Bearer character, if that is his real name. But what um, what Andy Peebles looks like to me, very clearly, uh, is Tony Blair. But the present day, Ooh. the present day ravaged and haunted Tony Blair, only yes. in larval form. Uh, it's really <laughs> terrifying and it's made worse by the fact that he's filmed with so that his head is only halfway up the screen yeah <laughs> like it's like they'd set the camera up for DLT or something but then he cancelled and then they never cranked it back down again when Peebles turned <laughs> up um, it's quite cruel really but he deserves no better because he really is a grub isn't he he, he brings nothing <laughs> yeah. and it's actively unpleasant Having him around, you know, peeping his peeping his little head out of your half-eaten apple, uh, yeah. and he's <laughs> and he's dressed like a sort of satirical cartoon of a chartered accountant or something. It's his top mm. of the pops debut, and he's turned mm-hmm. up all in grey, like yeah. uh, determined to make an impression. You know, all business, yeah, mm. and it no nonsense. It must be a borrowed suit or something. Or, or else yes. he's got a stab vest on underneath, which is possible. Because <laughs> it, it's not, it's not an easy fit. It's very bulgy, and I don't think that's because he's jacked. You know, no, it's, no. And he's got the most demonic eyebrows ever, hasn't he? Oh, he's yeah. an apparition, isn't he? It's extraordinary. Yeah. The suit is yeah. a curious thing because if you remember in 1979, you had the Forty Towers episode with the um, the guy played by Nicky Henson, you know, who's sort of like wearing this kind of open shirt right down to his sort of navel, and um, mm. John Cleese makes his clue, you know um, quip about you know we've got enough bananas in this week, dear, um, you know, you remember <laughs> that one, and um, you know these constantly at odds with you know this kind of sex up geezer. At some point, you see him you actually see him reading Melody Maker at one point in the episode, oh, you know, yeah. he's trying to sneak his girlfriend yes. in, blah blah blah. And if you remember, John Cleese is wearing that kind of grey suit that is meant, you know, in 1979 as far as audience, as far as John Cleese is concerned, is meant to sort of mark him out as this absolute sort of 
little Hitlerian sort of stiff, you know. Which, of course, he looks mm. incredibly, incredibly hip. I mean, he looks like a kind of, you know, he, he could be playing at Futurama dressed like that, could John Cleese. Um, mm. Whereas, like, the Nicky Henson guy is just this ridiculous throwback to about 1974, you know, with his medallions yeah. and his hairy shirt and his flares and what have you. Um, so it's strange to get these weird timelines. So in a funny kind of way, Andy Peebles, you know, is possibly channeling the spirit of Futurama with, with, with that suit, but I don't really think that's the intention or, or the outcome, in fact. Yeah, also the first, the first thing he does uh, at the very beginning of the show is look upwards above the line of the camera for his cue. And then <sighs> yes. when he gets it, looks back down again and starts talking. The mark mm. of a true professional. <laughs> yeah. But from here on in, every Radio 1 Christmas do, he can just chuck this in the face, can't that I presented the most watched episode of Top of the Pops ever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and I interviewed John Lennon last, <laughs> apart from this bloke from San Francisco. Oh, he'd be fucking waving it in your face, mate. I would. And apart from that very brief interview of, can I have your autograph, please, Mr. Lennon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that one, yeah. But I know we always do this, uh, but... It has to be said, Andy Peebles in this episode, 30 years old. Fuck. Right? Now, if you see him in yeah. this, 30 years old, no. something's really badly wrong there. He's 58 in today's money, isn't he? Yes. Also, what's a bit upsetting is that his name is so close to the German slang word pedals, which is an old schoolboy term for cocks. Uh, appropriately enough. But he's just nondescript throughout. I mean, at one point, um, you know, he's like doing the thing where he's kind of, you know, got the kind of women, you know, women sort of draped around him. But there's none, there's none even that kind of horrible sort of sleazy sort of DLT or Noel Edmonds type sort of vibe going on. Again, he looks like a supply teacher, you know, he's kind of... Well, he he looks, he looks like he's, he's, He's about to be presented with an oversized check <laughs> by some uh, till girls. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of sheer absence of any kind of sort of frisson or connection or anything like that. It's... Peebles introduces the top thirty, and accompanying it is "You Can Do It" by Al Hudson and the Partners. Formed in Detroit in 1976 and obviously fronted by Al Hudson, who had a minor solo hit with Dance Get Down, which got to number 57 in September of 1978, this song is the first cut from the LP One Way, featuring Al Hudson. And what the pop craze youngsters don't know or care about is that the band have already changed their name to One Way. And it's up seven places this week to number 15. We'll talk about the song in a minute. Let's get into the quality of those picks because, oh, they're bad, aren't they, this week? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's one of Fleetwood Mac yes. where the taller members are disappearing off the top the, of the frame. The males. Yeah, just so we can get the ladies in shot. Yeah. Uh, which is something that doesn't happen to Sad Cafe, um, no. who... I never realised uh, that when you look at the picture, they look like like four Gullivers visiting <laughs> a Lilliput with a population of one. Um, yes, it's a very strange, unbalanced group. That Fleetwood Mac one though, it's it was like oh they've only got they've only got the, the women there. Uh, oh shit, let's find some blokes who've got beards and perms and arrange the image just so so we just see a chin or or yeah. a, a tuft of hair. It's it's remarkable. Yes, they couldn't be here. No. And also, it's one of those pictures where it's uh, Fleetwood Mac share a joke, yes. which means that they've all got these horrible expressions, yes. like they're all looking in different directions. Yeah. And 
uh, really appalling composition. The drummer out of dollars has had the top of his head taken clean off, which must have upset him. Errol Dunkler is uh, caught doing what anthropologists would call presenting. Yeah, yeah his, his uh, visit to the proctologists. Yes. <laughs> um, Rainbow is standing by a canal, uh, looking like they've just lobbed a shopping trolley into it. And what are you going to do about it, Grandad? <laughs> Why are they so bad? Even now, it's 1979 for fuck's sake. Yes. As we'll see, video technology is starting to pick up quite a bit around about this time. And Top of the Pops are, are quite happy to fuck about with lots of effects and everything. But picture-wise, it's still not happened for him, has it? I just don't think, it's, I just don't think it matters, you know, really. It's just, you know, any, any old image yeah. will do. So, yeah, t- Taylor Disco's still full-on, isn't it? Yeah, I have no memory of this record at all from the time. Complete, mm. complete blank in my mind. Uh, it's all right, though, isn't it? It's like, yes, it's, it is. It's fairly run of the mill for what it is, but it, mm. it's got a really nice sound, and especially considering as it's being played as background music over the charts on top of yeah. the pops, whose approach to fidelity of reproduction, uh, yes. as we'll see later in this episode, was sometimes a little free and easy. Mm. Like uh, so a lot of the time, they'll put a video on. And it's like it somehow reached the screen, sounding like the soundtrack of something mm. that was produced by Hal Roach. Right. Colson uh, Crackle. Yeah, and just sort of, you know, a, a frequency range of about, you know, 0.6. Uh, or the music behind the chart rundown sometimes. you want It's like they rang up Dial-A-Disc and held yes. the phone up to a mic. You know? <laughs> but this sounds really good. There's a really deep bass and a really nice top end on it which is really important for this particular record all all 56 seconds of it that we get before that before that big fake wash of canned applause from the two ronnie's audience comes roaring in (laughs) yes Uh, and not for the last time this episode there's a a great deal of faked appreciation in this episode yes perhaps an uncanny parallel with andy people's personal life Uh, but anyway this this song good Good bit of disco, this is. At a time when people were turning the backs on disco, there was still stuff like this where you went, oh, no, fair enough, mate, you're all right. You can, you can come through. Yeah, it's kind of... Sorry. So the following week, You Can Do It stayed at number 15, its highest position. Although they would linger at the bottom of the top 100 on five separate occasions in the 1980s, they would never come to top 40 land ever again. can do it from Al Hudson and the partners and the Dooleys have done it again. This week they're at number 16 in the top 30 with The Chosen Few. Oh, we, we are the chosen few. You chose me and I chose you. As we're treated to some primitive Aventis camera effects, Peebles informs us that the Dooleys have done it again with their latest single, The Chosen Few. 
Formed in Ilford in 1967 as a three-man, three-lady family group, the Dooleys started their career playing hotels in Essex, as half the band was still in school and not allowed in pubs. In 1972, they linked up with guitarist Bob Walsh, whose brother ran a booking agency in Manchester, who introduced the bands to the delights of the northern club scene which led to the entire band decamping to Lancashire and supporting Bob Monkhouse, Frankie Howard and Norman Collier. They signed to Alaska Records in 1974 and a year later they toured Eastern Europe, becoming the first Western band to play a gig in Moscow and selling 2 million LPs in the USSR, as well as being the first Western band to top the Japanese charts. Fucking hell, this is, this is what they thought we were. <laughs> do they mean us? They surely do. Do you think that's why they were approved to play in Russia? Because mm. it was like, yeah. uh, no one's going to get too restless. So this yes. is, well, we could defect, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they first came to national attention in 1975 when they recorded the theme tune to the BBC Adult Education Programme On The Move. And after linking up with Billy Ocean, who they shared a songwriter with, they signed to GTO Records. They finally broke the UK charts in 1977, when Think I'm Gonna Fall In Love With You got to number 13 in October of that year, and this is the follow-up to Wanted, which got to number 3 in August of this year, and was number 1 in Japan for 10 weeks. And it's up 14 places from number 30 to number 16 this week. Of course it is. Fucking Absolutely. hell. Yeah, it's it, it's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? What is it about this band that Japanese people are going mental over? I'm, I'm just no, I'm 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 flabbergasted. Um Yeah, maybe this is the musical equivalent of knickers in a tin or something. <laughs> from a from a vending machine. Yeah. I mean maybe it's just like well, you know Norman Wisdom was huge in Albania because it was the only mm. he was the only one let through whatever. I mean there was you see that, but in Japan they don't have that excuse. They go all no. kinds, don't they? Yeah. But of all that, you know, they they they, they pick they pick the Dooleys. Um, is it? Is, they, they, yeah, they always were a bizarre sort of blank. I mean, it's, I think anybody watching it now, or any sort of contemporary pop fan, I think would just be struck by their sort of holiness. You know, their kind of yeah. ordinariness, the way they look. And I think that this wasn't much of a premium put on things like appearance or choreography or or anything like that or, or time, or whatever. I think the only thing that matters, as far as anyone's concerned, is that they're vocally competent. You know, mm. which they are. How they dress, uh, whatever. How they move, oh, just jig about or whatever. It really doesn't yeah. matter. You know, there's that kind of weird sort of conceptual laxness. You know. Um, that, you know about them, just even on the sort of terms of being a kind of pop group, you know, it's a bit mm. strange. I mean, it's yeah, they're just it's it's cruise ship pop, isn't it? You know, you can yes, imagine sort of like very much so. throwing quoits around on stage or something like yes. that. You know, they play it's, it's just um, and of course it's 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 reggae tinged, isn't it? Because you oh. know, there's something during about that. It's not reggae like it used to be with Paul Nicholas, but no. it's reggae nonetheless. Yeah, it's got that kind of little sort of. I think it's just to give it that like holiday tinge, you know, because I think as we see throughout this episode, the idea of you know, holiday abroad pop is still quite a kind of potent thing, really, and still a. But this is like a holiday in Filey instead of yeah, yeah, it's Spain. Absolutely. I suppose so. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one thing I should just 
thing about that, you know, talking, we were talking about my book early on. If you're only going to buy two books this year, buy, um, Alan Jones's I Can't Stand Up for Falling Down. Um, mm. one of his, you know, his memoirs of like doing his interviews over the years. And it's a wonderful one he does with, um, Def Leppard at one point. Yeah. And Steve Clark, the singer, Joe Elliott's trying to sort of take the thing seriously. Steve Clark is getting absolutely pissed out of his head on the cheap lager. And at one point he was trying to sum up what, you know, the importance of Def Leppard, you know, he says, I'll tell you what we are, Alan. We're the doolies, we ghoulies. <laughs> we're the doolies, we ghoulies, right? And Joey says, what the fuck are the fucking doolies got to do we out? We are, we're the doolies, we ghoulies. Wow. <laughs> so every time I see the doolies, I always think we ghoulies, you know, that's it. It's, um, but um, there you go, you know. I like to see it as reggae as it should never be, ever. Uh, <laughs> but the comparison's a fair one, because one of the singers actually has a, a touch of the Paul Nicholas's about him, doesn't he? I was going to say, Roger DeCourcy, yeah. I was, I, I was in my notes as well. Paul Nicholas, yeah, definitely. And is it Roger DeCourcy or whatever the other guy looks like? He's got his uncanny... You know, He's got no, it's a bit more of a Keith Harris vibe Keith to Harris, exactly, not Roger yes. Nicholas. It's Keith Harris, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Keith Harris minus Orville. Yeah. Finally, we understand why Paul Nicholas always looks so pleased with himself. <laughs> These things are relative. Yes. They look like the cast of copycats. Oh, fuck, yes. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes, it's like there's a, exactly. a very, very much a British light entertainment feel to it. Yeah. You know? Like ITV might have been on strike, but everything bad about that channel is concentrated into these three minutes. Mm. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like the old, the old club circuit gave us so many great talents and helped to hone their acts to perfection but all the time this shit was seeping out the other end yes you know what i mean yeah uh, it's like it's british light entertainment of the 70s and 80s is is much maligned and mm. often unfairly but there's something so inescapably nightmarish about the worst of it mm. and people you know it's like people of our age react so strongly against it because it's everything we didn't want to be yes. and everything we didn't want to have to see. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like when when David had his headphones on exploring the, the Teutonic avant-garde and stuff, you know, and Al was delving into American soul and funk and I was burrowing into the past looking for other possibilities. This is what we were trying to get away from. Mm. Like specifically this, like yeah. sort of like nights out and and Sundays in with these fucking frizz-haired, tabloid-informed, art-hating, cotton-knicker-wearing, super-noodle-eating joy vacuums, you know, where <laughs> where everything is a bit of a giggle, but yeah. nothing is actually funny, ever. Yeah. And, of course, the terrible thing is when you look at the world we actually ended up in, it's far worse than that, and... Mm. You know, this now looks cheerful and harmless, but no. not to us. No, you know, no, not to us. It's just the epitome of the ugly, anti-sexual, mistakenly self-confident British scum. You know what I mean? <laughs> like fucking grooving in pontins and yeah. grinning away as the gains of the post-war period are slowly dismantled. You know, with their with their pink electric blankets and their their <laughs> waving hand car back window decorations, yes, and, you know, <laughs> and it's 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 nice that they're happy, yeah, you know, you've got to say, but as as people from the far future, 
we know where this is going. Mm. Um, and it, it's not good. No. Mm. It's Harvester Restaurant, Little Chef, sort of for a treat type. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Bernie Inn. Yeah. yeah. Or Bernie Inn, yes. Yeah. Dad yeah. Disco, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This is the kind of thing when you be when you would be at Pontins and it comes on and your mum and dad are up and you just sat there just looking away, hoping that the girl you've you fancied doesn't doesn't notice that you were this lot of twats. And yeah. your dad comes up to you and sort of shakes his ass about and goes, Oh come on you miserable cunt, you're on your holiday. <laughs> There's an amazing yeah. advert on YouTube which you'll have to put on the playlist. Oh. I can't remember if it's for I think I know. I can't remember it if it's for Pontins or uh, whatever the the one below that was. Oh yeah. You know there was one below that, like fucking whatever Maplins or something. You know the, <laughs> the, the lower lower one in Camber Sands. Yes. It's got Laurie McMenemy. Yes. Doing the voiceover, <laughs> and it's like a little glimpse into the world that everyone who lived through the 70s and 80s didn't want to be in so you get shots of people dancing in the in the dance hall to whatever cabaret singer is on you know and queuing up to get fucking food off hot plates that's oh, been there yeah. all day you know in the canteen oh it's and horrible it's, food as well it's like it's like chickens with, with like i don't know cherries or something studded into them and oh yeah yeah with, with mashed like potato a, a, all around it and everything oh it's Pontins Camber Sands. <laughs> That's right, and a, and a vat of baked beans with a skin on. Yeah, and he and he does say, "Hey, up, it's just like Top of the Pops." <laughs> That's right, <laughs> and it really is just like Top of the Pops. Yeah, at this particular this top of the moment. Pops. Yeah, it's like you look at them. The singers are what first catch your eye as being horrible, but in a way, it's the instrumentalists that that bother me. The yes. most, right? Because there's a, a, a nautical bassist. Um, yes. But unlike the bloke at a two-man sound, he doesn't look like a proper sailor. No. He looks like one of those nouveau riche blokes that steers a fucking barge up and down the Shropshire Union Canal, you know. And <laughs> But he buys the hat and the navy blue blazer and he's got like a tea mug with skipper written on it. And... Uh, <laughs> The guitarist has got that horrible, he's like an overgrown school bully look, you know what I mean? Like yeah. He's trying to look macho with his jumbo dreadnought 70s music teacher acoustic folk guitar and his big splayed tapping feet. Uh, and he looks like a cross between Mike Reed, R-E-A-D, and mm. Mike Reed, R-E-I-D. <laughs> uh, really disturbing the only one i like is the lady on keyboards because she looks quite cheerful yes in a pint pulling sort of way and mm. i know someone who's got a dress like that because they still make them and uh. seeing as she was one of the doolies who left the group to go and live in south africa in yes. 1982 yes. i'm sure she's a lovely person but I'm, I'm actually looking at this advert now and that the, the wonderful spread uh consists of a, a massive chicken and it's got <laughs> slices of orange and halves of uh, cherries all over it and the the piped mashed potato all over it so it looks like it's wearing a frilly shirt the chicken looks like it's going to the PFA awards yeah yeah oh god smashing grub <laughs> but it's it's all captured here it's all captured here in the doolies yeah it really is you know the doolies play Ponty's Camber Sands oh almost almost certainly yeah yeah probably still there mm. I mean Family bands 
are always creepy anyway, yeah. right? And I've said this before on it. As soon as you yeah. go past the number two, the creepiness of a group increases exponentially with every yeah. sibling you add on. Yeah. Uh, and there's six of them in mm. this shower, mm. which is why, you know, even the even the heavy roots rhythm of the backing track uh, <laughs> can't distract you from the, the pure horror of the doolies and their inverted souls. Comparisons with the liquid gold, they're pretty unavoidable, aren't they? Around about the same time, uh, both ludicrously overmanned. Both of them had a mad-looking singer with a bit of a gap in the teeth, and they both had a wacky drummer. But, oh, God, yeah. Yeah. But liquid gold, you have to say, were a bit funkier, if you could ever use that word for liquid gold. They were a bit funkier. Liquid gold, I remember being one of those I Heart the 70s programmes claiming that they were... Um, um, electronic music pioneers. <laughs> <laughs> Are they mentioned in your book, David? <laughs> They're not. Oh, fucking no, hell. No. Outrage upon yeah, outrage. they felt they were one of the very first people to kind of use that kind of, you know, sort of synth-generated thing. And, uh, you know, they really paved the way, you know, for your new orders and people mm. like that. And in fairness, uh, Bell and Sebastian are a bit funkier than the Dooleys. No. <laughs> so the following week, the chosen few leapt six places to number 10 and would spend two weeks at number seven. However, the follow-up, Love Patrol, would only get to number 29 for two weeks in March of 1980 and they never troubled the top 40 again. By the early 80s, three of the band had emigrated to South Africa and the ones left behind split up into the Dooleys and the new Dooleys, and both groups are disbanded by 1992. Fucking hell, man, the isms and schisms of the Dooleys. Yeah. And unfortunately for gag writers of the two Ronnies and the comedians, the Dooleys never recorded a song called I've Got You. And the chosen few, well, it's my debut on Top of the Pops, and it's a debut, too, for an Edinburgh-based band, The Head Boys, with their latest single called The Shape of Things to Come. Caesar's praying for rain Lightning flashes around The prophet is screaming His head hits the ground You should hear the warning Peebles, awkwardly rocking on his heels and getting shadows on his face. Yeah, again, uh, oh. against the infinite blackness of empty space. Yeah. That's the weird thing. He's just like in this inky void, which, you know, is probably where he belongs. He informs us that this is his first appearance on Top of the Pops and introduces a band who are making their debut too before gawkily looking at the floor manager and ducking away before he was supposed to as the camera swings round to reveal the head boys with the shape of things to come. Formed as Badger in Edinburgh in 1977, who released two singles that year which failed to chart, the Head Boys were almost immediately picked up by Colin Bell, who was the manager of the Tom Robinson Band at the time, and they were signed to RSO, the biggest record label in the world by 1978, and reluctantly moulded into a new wave band. 
This is their debut single as the Head Boys, and it's been produced by Peter Kerr, fresh off a stint knocking together Airport and Forget About You for the Motors. It's up this week from number 56 to number 52. Now, lots to talk about here. Peebles, first and foremost. Um... It is his first appearance on Top of the Pops. He is already awkward as fuck. Why aren't these people being coached before they let them on Top of the Pops? It's weird. I think, as I say, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of, like, care necessarily in the production. I just think it doesn't really matter. It's mm. pop, it's 39, you know, shut up, you know, just get on with it. You know, there's just this, yeah, this bizarre... Sort of, I mean, everything tends to be kind of overproduced and overthought through in terms of every sort of aspect of things, you know, in terms of pop these days, you know, it's a little avail, but, you know, it, it's kind of... Why, why make the effort? Why bother? It doesn't matter, mm. it's just pop. Well, the one nice thing you can say about Andy Peebles is that you don't get that impression that he's thinking, at last, I'm in front of the camera. Yeah. You know, I've come out from behind the mic. Yeah. And I've got my mug on the TV, which you do with a lot of them. And yes. it's, it's always a really dislikable trait. Um, the point is, he should have stayed behind the microphone, mm-hmm. obviously. it's uh, But it's, yeah, you know, at, at least he has the decency to look... Uh, to look embarrassed. But at the same time, the horrible thing is you watch this and you think, ah, uh, that's why Simon Bates got so much work. Yes. That's mm. why DLT was on almost every week. Yeah. Because it was second nature to them. Yeah. But the band and the song, I mean, to my mind, this is old wave, isn't it? Um, <laughs> they're a band that look like they're on the wrong side of 25 and they actually really want to be Blue Oyster Cult or something like that. But, you know, they've signed to a big label and they've gone, look, here's your wazzy little jackets and here's your skinny ties. Get on with it. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, it sort of devolves as it goes on, mm. right? It's like, really, it's it's power pop, mm. right? And as so often, it's uh, it's neither especially powerful nor really pop, you know? Yeah. Like what, that's usually, that's just bands who don't have the chops to rock out. And, yeah. But reach for the grossest and most, basic stadium cliches and put them into what's really a sort of tuppenny halfpenny bubblegum tune and then mm. try and shake a bit of fizz into it by leaping around and yeah. twitching to sort of suggest energy and manly commitment to something unspecified and unseen mm. uh but yeah with this lot it's sort of the 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 mask slips as it goes on and mm. uh, towards the end it's basically like an fm rock tune yes uh, and that's the best bit as well where there's this like sort of bed of jangling electric piano you know mm. so you've got like the, like the keyboardist is doing this sort of it's like out of all tomorrow's parties or something you know <laughs> that sort of bed of like ding 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 on the yeah. and he's the best one and yet he's pushed out to the side yeah visually and musically but yeah it and what that proves is if you're making fundamentally tasteless music like this, then you have to go big. Mm. Um, you have to just do it and own it. And, uh, you know, if you're doing pomp and stomp with a sort of spindly, cheapo backing like this, you know, it's worse than useless. Mm. It's interesting that you made, I think Callum Malcolm, I think was the name of the guy on the keyboard, and yeah. he is the one that actually went on to have some sort of a career in music, you know, production, things like that, I think, work with uh, people like Blue Nile or whatever. Yeah. But it's funny, even he's sort of sitting there, he's looking around, he's surveying the rest of them, he's almost slightly detached, I think, I'm going to bail the fuck out of this outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I can. You know, he's almost got his eye on them, sort of, and he's always like looking further, you know, this will do for now. With his uh, two keyboards. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which yeah. is not, not, not very punk at all, not or post-punk punk or any punk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is, you know, it's Robert Stigwood and people like that, you know, they're, a mis- they're, a, they're an unwise investment, basically, and based on this assumption that, yeah. you know, like, basically punk was just this kind of explosion, and what was going to result in that was this, like, this kind of jerky, sort of codified, skinny tie, the new wave, and then this would be sort of like a prime, almost like sort of, you know, manufactured example of that and you know it was a bad bet because very very shortly indeed stuff like this there's a lot of it at the time people in coloured horn coloured rim glasses and spiky yes. hair and skinny ties and Rodney, Rodney Trotter likes they're yes. all going to be swept away and dissolved in a sea of like scar and synth pop and white funk or whatever that is mm. just sort of like just just beginning to sort of rumble and yeah. you know they don't you know and, and they don't realise that and obviously I mean it's weird I mean it got to about what, number, number 45 you know, it's not one hit wonders they're one miss one Wonders, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Because I was shocked that this song didn't get into the charts because yeah. they they made a lot of TV appearances round about this time. I remember seeing them on Crackerjack, mm. that cauldron of pop fire and fury. Yes. <laughs> well, it's the it's the the grease millions. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's like being put to to bad use. A lot was riding on them. Yeah, they would have ridden the fuck out of them. Uh, but you know what? An ironic title: The Shape of Things to Come. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, this this is also yeah an example of something you do you do see a bit around this time, which is this sense of punk having closed doors as well as open them. Yeah, uh, you know, and it's like now the, looking back, there's obviously very much a net benefit there, but the effect of punk does mean that records which once might once have been enjoyably grotesque mm. sort of get shaved down to this. You yeah, know? and it sounds like a like an ant puffing its chest out, you know what I mean? It's, mm. like, it's just no use to anybody. Yeah. Uh, and also what these remind me of, when I was a kid, like around this time, sort of avent, this was like the default setting of a band. You yes. Know? Like So if you were doing an advert for a, a shit ice lolly or something, or, you know, milk has got a lot of bottle or something, yes. in the 60s you'd have groovy guys in beads and... Red Polonex, and in the seventies they'd have had sequins and platforms. Um, Then by the eventies, it's this like sort of skinny zilches, yeah, with skinny ties and seafront souvenir shop glasses, and you know (laughs) a little bit older than they let on, like gurning and leaping around, yeah, all sort of pumped up and serious, but about nothing. Um, What this is, this is the type of music that Brian Tilsley listens to mm. in 1979 before <laughs> Ivy tells him to turn that racket down. Yeah, and he starts going to discos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, there is... I mean, they are wearing the skinny ties, but they've tucked them into the top of the shirts like Sergeant Bilko. Yeah. <laughs> Probably because the ties get in the way of all the fretwork. <laughs> but also because they don't, they don't look... Like a young rock band, you know what I mean? No. And it's like, no. okay, if you if you just don't have the right face or the right kind of air about you, then that's fine. But if that's the case, don't then try to look and act as much like rock musicians as you possibly can with your, your dark glasses and your heroic poses, you know. Because mm. you'll only make everyone feel awkward. It's like watching desperate imposters, you know, which is what you yeah. are watching, really. But it just makes it so obvious and... And inescapable, and they, they're like they're like brown sauce without without the sharp 
satirical wit. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, yeah. Or um, well, it's like a, a like a Bruce Foxton solo record or something like yes. that. Yes. You know? Like if, yes. if he had some stupid half-assed idea about breaking America, like despite mm. the fact this this lot couldn't break sea land, you know. The thing that seals the deal for me is um, uh, during the during the uh, the instrumental break where the lead singer's doing some very unconvincing hopping from foot to foot and shaking his fist. He's trying to say, oh, punk rock, power pop. It looks like the farmer who's uh, really angry at Joan Petunia for leaving the gate open. <laughs> <laughs> the Dick Van Dyke act of Yorkshire accents, that one. Hey, got Petunia. <laughs> There's two things I did like about this clip, right? One is the bearded roadie, or whatever he is, who's standing yeah. behind the keyboard player with his big arms folded. Um... It's like he's just. It's like everyone was too scared to ask him to get out of shot. You know, he's like that, yeah. standing here, um, and also like the big tiled mosaic things that are hanging yeah. up uh, around the stage, uh, mostly because they appear to have been transported there straight from the subway under the ring road in Kidderminster. Uh, mm-hmm. The walls of which looked pretty much exactly like that in 1979, except with cocks and balls drawn all over yeah. them, you know, and gluey crisp bags stuck around the bottom, you know. Yeah. But to me, that suggested the uh, urban grit and alienation which uh, the band so badly failed to put into the record. So the following week, The Shape of Things to Come jumped seven places to number 45, its highest position. The follow-up, Stepping Stones, got absolutely nowhere near the charts And after they knocked back a tour of the USA in order to doss about in the countryside and work up a new LP, which was rejected by RSO, they split up in 1980. However, keyboard player Callum Malcolm went on to create the Castle Sound Studios in Edinburgh and produced practically every band in the young sound of Scotland scene of the early 80s, as well as Prefab Sprout, Mark Knopfler, Simple Minds and Wet Wet Wet. single from the head boys the shape of things to come at number four on the chart this week michael jackson and don't stop till you get enough and here to dance to it legs and co We've already covered Michael Jackson in myriad chart musics and this is the first cut from the LP Off The Wall. His first solo LP in four years and the first where he had creative control. The second song that Jackson ever wrote, after Blues Away in 1976, is technically the follow-up to Ben, the rat-bothering ballad which got to number 7 in December of 1972, and it came with a state-of-the-art video with three chroma key jackos cavorting over some geometric shapes. But we're getting Legs and Co. instead. And it's up this week from number 7 to number 4. Well, many things to discuss here. This is his first official solo single at the age of 21. Can can you believe that they waited for this long to pull the trigger on Jacko Solo? That's extraordinary. And of course, there's still this overlap. He's still actually touring with the Jacksons. Yes. Um, 
which, you know, it does seem a little strange because, you know, this is, yeah, I think you do kind of forget that. I think just because this is such a towering achievement, I mean, this is a towering achievement of the 20th century, basically. Mm. One of them. I mean, you know, Picasso's Demerswell d'Avignon, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's you know, Louis Armstrong's heebie-jeebies, Michael Jackson, don't stop till you get enough. It's, mm. um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an absolutely glorious piece, an absolutely guaranteed floor filler, of course. And, um, What's really yeah. strange is you get this kind of bizarre equalising effect of Top of the Pops. There's no, it's just, um, you know, and here's some more pop, and um, there'll be some more pop yeah. to come after this. It just, you know, it's as if it's just all part of the kind of same, it belongs in the same sort of band, band with as, you know, the doodies or whatever. It's, 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 yeah. um, that, that, that's, I find that extraordinary, really. Um, mm. I remember when my, it was Michael Jackson did, uh, when they did Blame It on the Boogie. And there yes. was, the, the, you know, there was, uh, you know, the Jackson version. And then there was this other version by the bloke that actually wrote it. It was also called Mick Jackson. Mick Jackson, <laughs> yeah. Mick Jackson is geezer from Manchester. And I remember having this sort of similar sort of effect then, that, you know, that the, the, the Jacksons, Michael Jackson, weren't these kind of sort of towering artists. But, you know, they were a pretty kind of fairly, in some ways, slightly modest pro- proposition, you know, moving from number seven to number four or whatever. Um, yeah. And, um, well, they're, they're disco, aren't they? So they're not important. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's just a bit of froth. Singles act. Mm. Mm. You know how it is when somebody big dies, and you just go, "Oh, I want to hear, want to hear one of them songs." And it's always interesting to see which song you go for first. I mean, with Boa, it was "John, I'm Only Dancing" for me, mm. and when Michael Jackson died, it was this because mm. this is his best song, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's one of the best songs. I mean, it's just an absolute sort of fountain of sheer joy. It's uh, yes. and it hasn't diminished at all. I mean, you know, it's no. completely undiminished no. by time. Possibly because it gets played all the time, you know, rightly so. Mm. Because, like I say, you know, it's absolute guaranteed flawful in any occasion, in any space. Mm. You know, you know, the arrangement hasn't dated. The um, no, um, it's still, you know, it's just retained every sort of last kind of, you know, fluid ounce of its uh, original um, intensity. Yes. When he died, I was at my mum's, so I didn't get a chance to make that choice because I didn't have my record collection with me or whatever. But no. the next day, I was going. I got a mini cab to the station to go home, and of course, all the radio stations were playing Michael Jackson. And this came mm. on, and the cabbie leans over and he goes, "Oh bloody hell!" Turns it, and then there's another Michael Jackson song on another <laughs> channel. Oh, oh bloody hell! And he turns it again. Finally, settles on some. Uh, some gammony sludge and goes, uh, oh, there you go, bit of Kasabian, that's more like it. (laughs) That's less like it. Mm. And what is strange, of course, here is that rather than have the actual video, you know, Mm. they go for a a Legs & Co performance. And it must be one And the video was mind-blowing. Yeah, well, it was absolutely mind-blowing. And, I mean, it's pretty kind of invidious, really, for Legs & Co, really, to have to sort of do this. It's not... I mean, you know, with other stuff in the 70s, I mean, if if they're dancing to something like Gilbert O'Sullivan, then they're kind of providing something that Gilbert O'Sullivan couldn't provide himself, i.e. the ability to sort of dance, you know, in a kind of Mm. sort of way. Here, I mean, they do this kind of rather sort of pallid, you know, impersonation. We, you know, everyone's familiar with Michael Jackson's moves at this point, and they sort of rather yeah. tamely reference them at some points in this bizarre, yeah. coy, slightly kind of sapphic um, performance. You can't outdance Michael Jackson. No, no, no. Even in, you know, not even in 1979. Well, mm. certainly not in 1979. And the irony is, that it, it, in a way, it's probably one of their 
better choreographed efforts, actually, in some ways. You know, they mm. would say that, like, every single time they would say, you know, whether it's pants, people, legs and co, they always talk about, you know, sexless sexism and, you know, the fact that they're kind of, you know, although there's a sort of purience matter that they're moves don't really you know they're, they're more like kind of gymnastic type moves or whatever there's something kind mm. of bbc chased about them but um but no they 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 push it a little bit here but you know it, nonetheless it's just falls so far short choreographically of what jackson does himself and which we're all familiar with yeah but i mean in fairness other than sublimating into vapor in mm. front of the camera lens mm-hmm. there's not really any way you could do justice to this if you're yeah. not michael jackson yeah no yeah. we've just come off an episode where um Legs and Co. were sexist and damn sexy, if you will. Yeah. Three years down the line, has there been much of a change? Um, I mean, what they're wearing here, they've got uh, they've got black dresses that are kind of like split up the sides of the appendix, and they've got different coloured, what would you call them, like cummerbunds or something? Yeah, cummerbunds, yeah. Yeah, and they're on a stark white background, which is non-more um, Aventis, isn't yeah, well, it? It's, uh, it's very Kenny Everett. Exactly, yeah. You're on that low-definition TV, and with that glaring, brightly lit videotape, when you put yeah. a white void behind, it means that bits of people's heads and arms just disappear, yeah. like swallowed up by the nuclear brightness of the background, which looks yeah. a bit disturbing, like they're coming towards you out of the sun. Yeah, yeah, and they're kind of like just basically strutting on and strutting off, and there's lots of perspective shots. So we see a few in the background and one right at the front, and Sue has got the uh, international warning symbol biroed onto her kneecap, like an exclamation <laughs> mark in a say, triangle, yeah, yes, uh, which yes. to me does look very much like a threat to encroaching dads. Yes. I think they assume that it means don't stop, but according to the highway code, that actually means warning, danger ahead. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that could be going into someone's groin. That's, that's a bit threatening. What it should be, I've worked out, is that Don't Stop would be a yellow oblong with a black border with a no waiting sign in the top right-hand corner and the words, while well, you still haven't got enough mm. underneath. But it, that's a lot to get onto a yeah, name. It's, it's conditional, you know, though, isn't it? It means don't stop until you get enough. So I think perhaps it's implying mm. you can stop now because you've had quite enough. You've had two minutes of legs and co, and that's quite enough for you, Dad. But yeah. you know they're happy because, for once, they're not dressed up as hammerhead sharks or <laughs> yes, <laughs> or big game hunters or you know. It, yeah. they, so they're digging it, you know. And I don't, yeah. I, you know, I sort of, I always want to put a bit of a limit on this thing of saying, oh, it's sexist. I mean, the way they're presented is often sexist, but they yeah. are dancers, and this is what yeah. they do. It's their self-expression, yeah. and they like to, you know, to put on a display that's kind of what dancing is so you know i cut them a bit of slack and grant them a bit more agency usually yeah, um, yeah to quote james brown they're using what they've got uh, yeah. to get what they want uh, and what they've got is years of dance experience and what they want is uh you know the, their wages yeah their wages and uh, you know the odd supermarket opening yeah but i mean it's it's far easier to take that view when they're wearing slinky black dresses than, than, you know, when they've got coconuts on their tits, you know, and yes. uh, grass skirts and all that sort of stuff. But the song, it is really weird to say, but this is his debut solo single and it's his best. Mm. I don't know. I don't what, know. Why, what are you saying? I don't know. Is it better than Billie Jean? Yeah. 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 Do you think? Billie Jean's fucking amazing, but this is, is better. I mean, that's mm. the split, isn't it? It's going to be yeah. one of those mm. two. Yeah. 
There's nobody going, oh, but what about Liberian Girl? <laughs> yeah. Earth Song. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a slow downhill from yeah. here, his whole career anyway, yeah. really, isn't it? On The trend is downwards. There's Off the Wall, then Thriller, then Bad, then Dangerous, then History, mm. and then it's into the canal, you know. I mean, it's... Uh, mm. The interesting thing about this, and one reason why I sympathise with Legs & Co here. It's like a lot of great dance records that, in that it's very easy to move to this, but it's quite hard to dance well to it because there's a lot going. Mm. I mean, listen, you know, as if I know anything about dancing, but I do know that because there's a lot going on in this record. It's not a stomp and it's not a shuffle. It's quite intricate, yeah. you know. And also it's on... Un- yeah. Laurie McMenemy would come off the dance floor when this came on. <laughs> But at this point, a lot of dance records are either sort of gritty and soulful and organic mm. uh, and dirty, or they're very precise and mechanical and smooth. Um, and this is sort of both and neither. There's like a looseness to it, like in the break, especially with the vocal ad-libs and all this stuff. But at the same time, mm. it really gets its uh, propulsion from the busyness of the backing track, which... Yeah. Is like a hundred tiny musicians all working simultaneously in separate lit up boxes, you know, like a like a mm. giant clockwork groove machine. And there's no sense of sweat to it or toil. But equally, it's not mm. really space age or robotic. It just sounds human. No. It's uh, ironically enough, yes. considering uh, it's a Michael Jackson record. It sounds extremely human, and uh, yeah, but not live. It's so unmistakably a great studio creation. It's like a like a mm. black pet sounds, you know, like a, a million moving parts yeah. all contained and synchronized. You're right about it being hard to dance to because I tried to work out a dance routine in front of the mirror to it with a view to impressing girls at the uh, Top Valley uh, Youth Club. And, uh, you know, my sister kind of like coached me a little bit and it, it essentially involved me putting on uh, a, a fawn corduroy jacket with uh, big lapels and having a bit of open shirt I, I, I wasn't a mod just yet and uh, kind of like moving my fists from left to right while kind of like waggling my arse which <laughs> essentially made me look like a fat auntie trying to get out of a little armchair <laughs> and at certain points I would pick up uh, Rex who was still a puppy then because you know everything I did then involved <laughs> the dog dog had to be everywhere with me didn't really work out for me, but, you know, I had a go, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. No, it isn't. As, as probably as Laurie McMenemy would have said. See, what I always associate this record with, um, in about the year 2000, there was a big postal yeah. strike in London, um, and I didn't yeah. get my gyro. These were the days where you'd get your gyro in the post and have to go and cash it. So, as ever, when there's a... Str- the good old days. Yeah, so as ever, when there's a strike that you absolutely support, but which suddenly affects your own life in a really negative way, mm. your solidarity starts to wobble just slightly. So <laughs> I'm sat there going, no, 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 but this is... It's right, it's right. Um, nothing to eat, you know, in the dark, listening to mm. uh, Off the Wall. And it seemed to me that on the chorus of this song, Michael Jackson was singing, keep on with the postal strike... Don't stop till you get enough. <laughs> like, is it, from the past, he was sending a message of support to the post office yeah. workers in their struggle against management. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for this dubious freak, it's good enough for me. Um, so I've never yeah. been able to hear it as anything else since. I don't even know what the real words are. 
and I don't want to. As far as I'm concerned... Oh, I'm not going to tell you that. No, 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 no. This is Michael versus Consignia, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Always will be. Bit of a black mark for Top of the Pops for bypassing the intro, which is one of the greatest intros to a song ever, Mm. I feel. Mm. Yeah. They should have got Andy Peebles to do it as they uh, faded it So the following week, don't stop till you get enough nudged up one place to number three, its highest position. The follow-up, Off the Wall, got to number seven in December of this year, and he'd have two more top ten hits from that album with Rock With You, which is brilliant, and She's Out of My Life, which is the kind of gloopy shit that kind of like marked him out for the rest of his career. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, and I think that's... Unfortunately, basically, off the wall is only good when it's fast and shit when it's slow. Mm. We can argue all day about whether Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is better or Billie Jean is better, but mm. there's a part of me that thinks, no, Michael Jackson's greatest moment was when he went on the MTV Awards in 2002, <laughs> uh, just as a guest, and to everyone's surprise, announced that he was receiving an award as Artist of the Millennium. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> In fact, it was his birthday, and they were just trying to be nice, so they'd given him a cake or a like a darts <laughs> trophy, or so I can't remember. Um, but in the introduction, Britney Spears said, "I've always considered Michael Jackson to be the artist of the millennium." <laughs> so then he comes on, he picks up this thing and says, "Well, you know, since I was a child growing up in Gary, Indiana, I never dreamed that one day I'd be here receiving this award as artist of the millennium." <laughs> and everyone thought this was him getting it wrong, right? Like a really embarrassing scene. But then it came out later that, in fact, MTV had been begging him to make an appearance, but his people had said. He'd only appear if he was introduced as artist of the millennium. And I mean, if you're going to be a dick, you might as well take that to stratospheric heights. <laughs> yes. You know, don't just demand that you be hailed as artist of the millennium by a PVC clad Britney Spears, but then go on to pretend that you've just been given an award proving that you are indeed the artist of the millennium when you haven't. And just dare anyone to say a word. You know what I mean? <laughs> like part part enigmatic genius and part giant baby. Like all the most entertaining pop star idiots. And the camera cuts to Leonardo da Vinci sat there in a tux, <laughs> grinning through his teeth and saying, that fucking cunt's done me again. <laughs> Jackson and the song was on top of the American charts this week called Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. If you like great disco music, then here's a track for you from the latest album by Chic. The album's called Risque. This is My Forbidden Lover. Now surrounded by girls with massive Trisha Yates hairdos, tells us that if we like great disco music, here's a track from the latest LP by Chic. It's My Forbidden Lover. 
Formed in New York in 1976 by Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards, who were in a rock band in the early 70s called The Boys, and then backup band members of New York City, who had a number 20 hit in August of 1973 with I'm Doing Fine Now, Chic immediately set about the UK charts when their debut single Dance, 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 Yowza, 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 got to number six. They went on a run of four more top ten singles on the bounce from 1978 to mid-1979, and this single, the second cut from the LP, Risque, is the follow-up to Good Times, which got to number five in July of this year. And it's just entered the charts at number 51. Yeah, just going back a little bit, the Sheik-Nottingham connection. Apparently the story goes that Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards were uh, part of New York City, and they played their final gig at Heart of the Midlands, which is now known as Rock City. So anyway, they're in the Bentink Hotel, which is just across the road from the train station uh, on their last night of the tour. And they had a chit-chat and said, yeah, when we get back to New York, we're going to form a band. Went out on the piss. When they got back, Nile Rogers had had everything nicked, including his passport. So um, Bernard Edwards went back to America. Nile Rogers went down to London and tried to join a rock band. But the the London rock fraternity were not having it because of his skin tone, apparently. Yeah, that Jimi Hendrix, what did he ever do? That's me claiming Chic for Nottingham, and by fuck, I'm sticking to it. But all oh, this band, how I love them. Yeah, this episode has mm. risen to quite a high peak around this, yeah. this point from which its descent yeah. will be rapid and undignified. I mean, this is it. I mean, it's, this, you know, this in a sense is bog standard Chic, and um, but yeah. you know, it's absolutely. I mean, they're shitting gold at this point, and I mean, it's yes, just, they are. You know, they're just, you know, just to, you know, they just switch their arms like you know, a donkey switches its tail, and it's just absolute genius beyond the reach of anybody else. I mean, I suppose yeah. what's more generally interesting is disco tends to involve like you know a kind of strong kind of strings component yes um and it's on the eve of like you know synthesizer about to kind of go and put all these people on the bread line or whatever you know and so but there is this kind of yeah. sort of loveliness about you know it kind of like preserves tracks like this in a way you know that's um you know that particular kind of period thing um i mean what's sad though about chic is is the fact that they were kind of slightly intimidated. There was that horrible movement, the disco sucks movement, wasn't there? And yeah, that was, that was those two cunts. or three years down the line. Yeah, exactly. They'd all be like, you know, Trump supporters to, you know, a man and a woman or whatever, um, no doubt, later yeah, on. Just you man. Know. Yeah, David, yeah, just man. yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, sort of, you know, manifestly racist, um, you know, nonsense or whatever, you know, and burning, burning disco records and stuff like that. And, mm. um, and what's sad in, in, a, in a way is that she was sufficiently intimidated by that they felt this was a kind of big shift in the marketplace they effectively retired almost you know and they yeah. took a kind of a you know they took you know obviously it was great for Nile Rogers or whatever you know in terms of the kind of production work or whatever but it's sad that there's something as obnoxious as that should have brought a halt to um to, to, to sheep yeah. really um I mean it worked the way that like it's so sad you know Trump supplants Obama you know it's almost like well, it's only, only it's in a, sort of thing. only in an official sense because really <laughs> they just carried on but with uh, yeah. rotating singers such as Diana Ross yeah. and yeah. Sister Sledge, yeah. so it was Debbie all right. Harry. I just, it just, I just remember seeing the interview with Lyle Rogers where he just talked about how affected being that and effectively intimidated. And I thought, yeah, bastards. Yeah, I, it is weird because over in this country we didn't give a fuck. Apparently, you know, we, evidently we didn't give a fuck. Mm. All this stuff's still charting. All the criticisms you could make of disco, that it wasn't really real music by real musicians and everything. You can just point at shit and go, what the fuck are you talking about, you stupid cunt? Hmm. 
Change your fucking mm, kiss mm. T-shirt and wash it because you stink. <laughs> Speaking of that, there's a curious similarity between the presentation of Chic here and that of the Dooleys earlier. Yes. Um, the way they're set up and the way they're filmed. Um, and you see that and you hear it and you think, it's, isn't it weird that white supremacists have ever existed? Yes. I mean, it's mean, <laughs> To be completely fair to uh, racists and fascists, this is maybe not uh, a fair comparison. But yeah, it's it's amazing how cool Chic appear here without even yes. having to bust out one of their better songs. I mean, it's 1979, which was mm. not a sartorial high point for any group of people on earth. Um, no. And they still managed to convey this amazing, not just this amazing sense of style, but deep style. Right, like the mm. this is an aspect of chic that gets overlooked a lot. I think probably because they weren't, you know, an art band or whatever. But that sort of Roxy music like image control and unified look, uh, and the way that worked alongside the sound to create this world of suggestion and this identity of semi ironic elegance. It works so beautifully, and this isn't mine or I suspect anyone's favourite Sheik track. Um, and it's... No, but it's still fucking mint. Yeah, it's true to an extent that with Sheik, the great tracks really stand out, and the rest is a huge expanse of sameness. But it's a huge expanse of sameness in the same way as the sea or the sky. Mm. And you mm. could just get lost in it for hours and not feel like you'd wasted any time. Definitely. I mean, I counted 12 people on stage. So, you know, that's even more than the Doolies. And, and proof that by late 1979, the National Union of Disco Performers is very strong. You know, some severe overmanning going on there. But, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. everybody's there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The only one that worries me a little bit is the um, keyboardist. There's two yeah. keyboardists. But one of the keyboardists, and he's, he seems to have to kind of, he seems very happy about it. It's almost like he's asked for that. But he, he's, he seems, he's like an adult being forced to play Schroeder's piano in like the Charlie Brown cartoons or whatever. You know, it's just <laughs> yes. like, he seems to be really having to kind of stoop. It's just set very low as the keyboard. And I mean, this is 40 yeah, years ago just... now. I'll bet that geezer is a martyr to his back problems yeah, now. It's, it's like you know, uh, it's, just... it's like Len Tucky, isn't it? In, yeah. Uh... In Susie Quattro's <laughs> band, what yeah. what what can you do when you've got a keyboard? You know, we we've seen examples of of people with keyboards and you know trying to trying to break out of the just standing there and plinking and plonking. You know, like there's not a lot you can do, but it's just like look, you're in chic, just stand there and look cool as fuck. Mm-hmm. What's what, what, all you need to do? What does kind of slightly gall me as well is the audience. They do look a bit sullen, don't they? As if they're being made to endure Lena Martell or something like that, the way they're kind yes. of, sort of swaying slightly resentfully and, like, you know, sort of practically looking at their watches. It's, uh, you know, you're in front of sheet, your feet away from sheet. There's two girls who were kind of like doing that thing where you look at the camera and try and look at the monitor that's at a different angle at the same time and try and get your face on and, and try and see your own face and, and, and failing dismally. You know, like you did at the supermarket. <laughs> it's like, look, Sheik's on. Stop that. Mm. See, the amazing thing with Sheik, being a guitar player, I'm always listening to Nile Rogers. But, of course, the strange thing about the guitar on Sheik records is that it's almost invisible. And you don't really hear it unless you're listening for it. You just feel it. Uh, and mm. yet he's busier on these records than anyone else except Bernard, you know. He's playing yeah. more and working harder and playing a more complicated part than any of the other musicians. 
Uh, mm. And if he wasn't there, the track wouldn't move. It wouldn't move in the same way. But it all happens in the background, like these uh, quiet fireworks just under the surface. Um, and everything else is really just a bed, all the strings, all the, it's just a, like a pad that's really just yeah. there to allow the guitar and the bass to do what they do. And it's a really individual approach to rhythm and to arrangement. And it's mm. the way the arrangement on these records work is what makes them sound unique. But they're also, it's also a bit counterproductive for a disco record because, you know, instead of dancing to it, you just want to listen to it mm. and hear what's going on and, and just, just, just wallow in it. Mm. Yeah, but I, I think there's a way that you can listen through your feet. You know what I mean? Oh, that's where I've been going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, my forbidden lover soared 28 places to number 23, but would only get to its highest position of number 15 two weeks later, breaking their five-song streak of top tens. The follow-up, My Feet Keep Dancing, would only get to number 21, the last time they ever bothered the top 40, until October of 1987, when the remix Jack... Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Free got to 19 if you want to count that, which I certainly <laughs> don't. Cheek and My Forbidden Lover from their album Risqué. And now a record which, believe it or not, has been around for six months and it's only just become a hit. For Dr. Hook, it's called When You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman. with his arm around the shoulder of a girl with frizzy black hair who looks a bit like Carla out of Cheers and a girl with a blonde Lego haircut draped on his shoulder tells us that the next song has been hanging around for six months When You're In Love With A Beautiful Woman by Dr Hook You see the nice thing about Peebles is it's not often you get to see uh, a Top of the Pops presenter with his arm around a young girl and he looks more uncomfortable than she does No 
having said that, Peebles pretty much always looks like the most uncomfortable person on screen at any given time. So. Formed in Union City, New Jersey in 1968, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show were a blue-eyed soul band named after Ray Sawyer who left their previous band, The Chocolate Papers, to become a lumberjack, but lost his eye in a car accident on the way to his new job in Oregon and decided to stay in the music business. After shortening their name to Dr Hook in 1972, their first UK hit single, Sylvia's Mother, went all the way to number two in July that year, held off the top spot by Donny Osmond's Puppy Love. But they'd have to wait four years for the next UK hit, A Little Bit More, which got to number two for five weeks in the summer of 1976, denied its place at the top by Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D. This is the follow-up to More Like the Movies, which got to number 14 for two weeks in April of 1978, and it soared from number 40 to number 26 this week. Oh, Dr. Hook. I mean, they, you know, I hate them then, and it just reminds me now. They, you know, it's that, that kind of feeling of sort of militancy and the desire to kind of get out of, like, Lou Reed having to get out of a small town that you get with Dr. Hook. You get the same feeling, you know, with the, with the Dooleys. Um and with, mm. with 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 Doctor Hook, I mean, it's you know, like you know, it's, yeah, he's ostensibly blue-eyed, so you can see that kind of commonality he has, you know, with Dewey, Dewey Brothers. But you know, with respect to the guy in the patch, you know, it's dead-eyed soul. You know, it's you saying they're the Dooley Brothers. Sorry, oh, the, I could say the Dooley Brothers. Yes, yes, definitely. They, they merge, don't they, into one sort of yeah mm. melding of mediocrity. But um, you know, the Dewey Brothers. You know, they always talk about them. They always, they always got those guilty pleasures compilations. And I mean, you know, and this mm. isn't. I mean, this isn't. If there's an opposite of a guilty pleasure, this is it. It's an innocent pain. Or Whatever. I don't know, but you know, and it's just uh, I, I just you know I hate like it. a wank with a cheese grater. <laughs> yes, 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 pretty much. Yes, yes, <laughs> and um, you know, and I just I just remember at the time, you know, just sort of developing this kind of burgeoning consciousness and directly linking kind of people's mass appreciation for stuff like this, you know, with the fact that we're probably all going to die soon in a nuclear war. You know, we're never going to see the year nineteen eighty three. You know, this <laughs> jelly bland, soft shite. Pop. You know, that's the reason we have Thatcher, because our brains have been addled, you know, by, you know, <laughs> the, 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 this sort of, you know, utter kind of, you know, um, anti-thinking shot. You know, that, that was, you know, that's my 17-year-old, 16-year-old sort of that's the way he used to sort of talk about things. But I can't, you know, and it's not like occasionally were things that I sort of disliked at the time that with age and maturity I've come to appreciate, but... You know, this is this is this is like a it's not so much a fine wine, it's just like a crap vinegar, you know, that's got worse with age. Mm. I think they're all right. Mm. <laughs> I mean, of the two most famous records by white artists to pattern themselves after Rock Your Baby by George McRae, mm. this is the more faithful and in its way the funkier, but Dancing Queen is by some distance the best. Yes. Um, having said that, I do think there's a place for Dr. Hook, and I, you know, I don't mean like, an oubliette, knee-deep in <laughs> raw sewage. they probably feel quite at home there, hide the smell of their jeans. But um, yeah. they did some great stuff, like Sylvia's Mother, which is a fantastic mm. record in the hot chocolate, tragic short story vein. Uh, yeah. And they are sort of remarkable for being this earthy, sort of all-American country rock band who were completely open to influences, not just from soul, but also from disco. And Mm. I don't know how much of that is to do with them being based out east in New Jersey 
rather than, you know, down mm. in the southern rock belt. Uh, maybe it made them a bit less insular. Or maybe they were just sellouts, man. But yeah. either way, it meant that they made some quite good records and certainly more uh, than they would have done if they'd just been like Poco or someone, you know. Yeah. This is sort of of a pair with, if I said you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? And mm. all, you know, like it's got that sort of slight sneaky snigger in the lyrics. I, at least that's the way we always interpreted it. Of, uh, mm. When you're in love with a beautiful woman, it's hard. Um, For no. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. but, but obviously, really, it's a lyric about paranoia, and I'm always in favour of mm. any lyric about paranoia, even a cheap and stupid one, because it's up there with lust and rage as one of the definitive pop emotions. Uh, and yeah. I like the way the band in this clip act out the lyric yes. by constantly glancing round at each other suspiciously <laughs> as if like yeah. no woman can be trusted <laughs> not to stray around the, the, the fragrant Romeos of the medicine show. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, I, this is one group of blokes that I would feel completely comfortable about leaving any girlfriend of mine with, not provided she had a sense of smell. Um <laughs> I think They're the kind of right. bitterness, the bitterness that I feel about it is probably, I, I, I regard them as like good old boys, even though that's possibly not at all fair on them and certainly mm. not in terms of their influences at the time. And I kind of detest them, you know, for that projection onto them. Um, what you just said, I mean, about George McRae, you know, uh, uh, you know is, is actually, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's stark staring obvious now that you say it. Um, yeah. But then, you know, yeah, so I, that's probably why I feel slightly, slightly warmer, you know, like sort of just the wrong side of lukewarm to this than it would most of their other stuff is perhaps that it's that classic thing that like Johnson said you know that I'll probably think about listening to somebody who sent him um, a manuscript he said um, sir your manuscript is both good and original however the part that is good is not original and the part that is original is not good and uh, mm. that's kind of you know, how I feel about uh, perhaps this one yeah. the thing about this song is I remember, I remember it being on all the time a very Radio 2 song mm, yeah, very yeah. Wogan friendly yeah, yeah, song this yeah. is and also the arguments at school over whether the, the bloke in an eye patch, Ray Sawyer, was was really didn't have an eye mm. or it was just a cod mm. to get to get onto top of the pops as if yeah. you know as if wearing an eye patch you get you on top of the pops. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? You know, it's that kind of strange mm. thing like, you know, the geezer in Frank goes Hollywood or Bears in Happy Mondays, you know, the guy that does the least and yet is somehow he the most somehow the most important member. Yeah, he is. I mean and he's got four maracas on the go mm. here. Yeah. Which makes him, he's like the world's strongest pirate cowboy bears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even Davy Jones never managed four, as far as I, no. as I remember. But he's only, <laughs> he, he's my favourite member of Dr. Hook, the same as he's everybody's favourite member of Dr. Hook. Yeah, because he's the only one that anyone remembers. Sure, but th- my second favourite is the nerd, mm. is the weird sort of elderly yeah. nerd. You only see him for a few seconds in this video, but... He's yes. great. What he looks like, he's sort of got like this frizzy hair and glasses, and he looks like in a film where you have like an elderly inventor and shopkeeper, and the bad guys come <laughs> in and menace him and start breaking up the shop, and he says, I yeah. don't know what you boys want from me. That's why <laughs> it's like not the kind of character you associate with uh, rugged gentleman's music like this. But, I mean, there's not enough people in pop with eye patches. I think yeah, well, Slick Rick, uh, Gabrielle, boots out of animal quackers. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. You see, because mm-hmm. I always wanted my dad to wear an eye patch. He had a glass eye. All right. From an accident as a as a kid. Sorry, yeah. I'm laughing. That's not. That's very sad. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it was terrible, man. But um, he uh, every time Doctor Rook came on, I'd look at me dad and go, Dad, you know, you know him, mushy Diane. You know why not? Why don't you have an eye patch? And he'd just go fuck off. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, in a way, I'm very glad they didn't because uh, just before he died, he he actually gave me his glass eye, and I now have it on my. Uh, on my keychain. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he gave it to me. He says, put that on your keychain, so I'll, I'll always keep an eye oh, yeah. on your money. Oh. Oh, that's brilliant. And I said, you sure it's not me crotch, Dad? And he said, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the fact that they did a record called Sexy Eyes, because yes. it's such an artless title. It's like they might as well yes. have called it Sexy Legs. <laughs> Which, yes. come to think of it, is what Legs & Co. should have been called. Um, yes. Would have been more more <laughs> dignified. Um, yes, <laughs> it's like do you know that record "Sexy Girl" by Glenn Frey? Mm. It's from the eighties, um, and it, when you hear that, you understand that Doctor Hook are actually quite good in the jaw dropping, yeah. <laughs> stupid title world. Um, yeah, and they don't sound like a, a a freezing cold bathroom like that record does. If you ever heard mm. "Sexy Girl" by Glenn Frey, it's like the peak of old man eighties stupidity. Um, uh. Yeah, and just the the warmth and humanity of Doctor Hook worrying about their their faithless, beautiful girlfriend in this song. Oh, I I say good for them. And of course, it's, it's it's another example of dad disco, isn't it? It is, yeah. This would have been a floor filler at Ponting's Camper Sands. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Laurie McMenemy would be up there, wouldn't he, straight yeah, away? Barbican in each hand. Yes, yes. <laughs> but as you say, I mean, it was quite a simple matter, and I'm channeling a lot of the rage from my late teens, you know, in a war against, you know, parents and kids, you know, the... You know, the, these were sort of, you know, the you know, arch arch enemies, you know, they were Herman Goering's basically. Yeah. So Yeah. You know, Radio Two, I mean that sums it up. At your cousin's wedding, your your mum would be yeah. up going, Oh, come on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Doing that mum thing with the arms. You know, it's just basically put your arms out like you're a Dalek and just sort of wobble them about <laughs> yeah. a bit. Mm. <laughs> oh, come on, Aral, this is this is your sort of music, isn't it? Pop music. No. <laughs> No, leave me alone. <laughs> so the following week, when you're in love with a beautiful woman, soared 15 places to number nine, went on a three-week crawl up the top ten, and five weeks after this episode, it knocked one day at a time by Lena Martel off the top spot and spent three weeks at number one, keeping crazy little thing called Love by Queen at bay for two weeks, eventually being usurped by Walking on the Moon by the police. The follow-up, Better Love Next Time got to number 8 in January of 1980 and they'd have one last top 40 hit in April of that year when Sexy Eyes, Sexy Eyes, got to number 4. <laughs> of course, Ray Sawyer, we lost him, uh, didn't we, recently? Yeah, yeah poor chap. Um, as is often the case, you know, he, he came across as... Um, I sort of took a dislike to him, as I say, you know, when I was uh, a kid, but... Uh, he came across as a very engaging chap in the obituaries, so I felt a bit, a bit sad and a bit guilty as well. Yeah, his his eye was the advance party to the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I commemorated him by watching the video to uh, "Baby Makes Her Blue Jeans Talk," which is uh, oh yes, yes, and those blue jeans say "Get the fuck away from me, you dirty bastard." Yeah, it's a bit disturbing, isn't it? 
Yeah, Although not yeah. as disturbing as the uh, cover of their LP, Sloppy Seconds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, yes. Yeah, it's essentially them trying to recreate the cover of With the Beatles. But it essentially looks like a hydra that's been dry-bummed, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very unsavoury LP cover, that one. But yes, R.I.P. Ray. Yeah. Everybody tempts her. Everybody tells her. And now on top of the box on this Thursday evening, a song which has already been a hit in this country twice, once back in 1957, and then again for Trudy Lopez in 1967. In 1979, here's a brand new version from Miss Viola Wills. After a bit of video trickery, which would have been dead impressive in 1979, we go straight to Gonna Get Along Without You Now by Viola Wills. Born in Watts in 1939, Viola May Wilkerson was married with six kids when she was discovered by Barry White in 1965 and signed to Bronco Records, his personal label. By the mid-70s, she relocated to London as one of Joe Cocker's backing singers and released her debut LP, Soft Centres. Oh, nice. This single, a cover of the 1951 country song originally recorded by Roy Hogshead and turned into a number 22 hit in the UK by the teenage girl duo Patience and Prudence in 1956, is the follow-up to Let's Love Now, which failed to chart in 1977. And it's up this week from number 64 to number 47. Now, you may notice Pop Craze Youngsters, there's a lot of tunes that have been on top of the pops tonight, which are nowhere near the top 40 at the moment. What is that all about? No idea. No. It's weird, isn't it? Perhaps it was just a sort of change of policy to try and feature, you know, but a little bit more of the up and coming rather than the up there already. I don't know. Um, either, either that or makes the money sign. <laughs> oh, well, yes, yes. Mm. Well, my, my feeling is that uh, the BBC have gone, oh, fucking hell, no ITV on. We've got the whole field to ourselves. Let's try and boost um, programmes like Top of the Pops by making it more of a variety thing. Mm. Because, you know, we're in 1979 now. We're all, we're all supposed to be, you know, new wave robots mm. in the charts and everything. Mm. And uh, this Top of the Pops seems to be fun for all the family, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was still very much the feeling at the time. You know, there were people there were people sitting watching the Top of the Pops who were who were born in, like, 1909, you know. Um, and mm. and there would be an expectation that they'd be catered to, you know, um, in some, you know, distant, yeah. you know. Um, my my grandma, you know, uh, wife of um, old Seven Days Janker's granddad, you know, she would have yes. she would have watched Top of the Pops, you know. She was the one that got me into pop music, you know, go around to her place, have some bourbon biscuits, listen to oldies but goodies by the Beatles every week on the radiogram, and that was the wow. foundation of my um, music experience. Because my parents didn't really own records. Well, they had two records. They had Russ Conway's Greatest Hits and Holst the Planet. <laughs> wow. And no record player, you know, so... It was, uh, you know, they, they weren't exactly a roadmap, but um, my grandma, she'd been a flapper in the 20s. And, you know, she collected Buddy Holly and stuff like that. And I don't know, it wasn't just Beatles, it was uh, Buddy Holly, the searchers, all that kind of stuff, you know. And, um, mm. but yeah, you know, obviously her, you know, probably her taste ultimately would run to the conservative a bit. But, um, but yeah, there was, I think definitely, you know, that variety thing is still, 
clearly at this point in the 70s, less so in the 80s. Yeah, it was felt that it yeah. was a show for all the family, which I deeply resented. And I deeply resented, like, the Radio 2s yeah. and stuff like that. Like, Can you not just give us one half hour a week? You know, we get this shite all week, you know, yeah. in the rest of the time. You know, an exclusive exactly. half hour that is, like, you know, that is... Um, a bit more, got a bit more pizzazz and usefulness about it rather than Lena fucking Martel, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think Lena Martel was number one because of mm. uh, because of the ITV strike mm. and Top of the Pops getting it on. Mm. Then again, Viola Wills is middle aged here and she she's is. got more energy than anyone else on this whole program. Yeah. Yes, she she's has. performing has. in a most extroverted fashion. Uh, it's it's, it's yeah. funny, yeah. She's, I mean, yeah, she's having, yeah, she's having a great time. I mean, that's probably a, sort of, you know, a little in the sun, and that's yeah, really cool. She's getting along very nicely with that. She's, she's now. Four, yeah, she's, yeah, absolutely, yeah, she's fourteen. Has it? Doesn't give a fuck. She does look literally like a recent divorcee who's out mm. on the piss yes. and very much <laughs> looking. Um, yeah, which is yeah. a little bit yeah. frightening. Cause she's, she's doing that sort of stiff, twitching, crazy, broken puppet dance, um, mm. uh, and these very emphatic facial expressions uh which is a little mm. bit much for the small screen really um there's a yeah. bit halfway through where she opens her mouth incredibly wide and it's just like whoa like yeah. <laughs> to take a step back she looks like mm. one of those bins you used to get at theme parks which is like a shape <laughs> like a clown with his mouth open it's like she didn't get a mini milk wrapper in there or a, a or a, a slam dunked <laughs> apple core um but it's although it's a bit frightening, it's really endearing because um, yes. you know. I mean, this isn't the best record she was ever involved in, um, and no. it does feel as cheap as uh, as my Christmas. But it's it, it's just what it's trying to be, and it's over very fast. Yeah. And I'd rather have this sort of you know been at the sherry trifle enthusiasm any day over some of the powders and poses we get on here you know mm. and god bless yep. them too yeah. but as we all get older and you know the the brick wall at the end of the street rears up um thank heavens for for old loonies like this grinning insanely in the face of the inevitable you know and and yes just because if she swayed over to where i was sitting and beckoned me onto the floor um i might pretend i had a broken ankle but that's that's my problem you know that's where that's why i'm yeah. where i am in life and i say more mm. more power to the silly old fool i mean you know yeah she's got she seems she seems nice i mean this thing she's probably one of the nicest people backstage yeah. it's never necessarily the hippies of the smiles i remember frankie goes Hollywood, holly johnson talking about being on top of the pops and who we'd met backstage and who had been you know who he liked and said well bonnie tyler was by far the nicest person you know so it's not necessarily about hipness or musical affinity yeah. Something about niceness sometimes. I mean, this is a specimen yes. of like again that era, pre pre eighties, whatever. Where you know something like this, you know, just you know, discussing. There's no again, almost a bit like they do. There's no particular emphasis or worry about the way that you appear. You know, choreography, anything like that. Singing is essentially the main thing, and then after that, just dress quite smartly and have a nice time. You know, and then well, she's made yeah. she's made a bit of an effort. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an impressive outfit, isn't it? It's a silver top with like noddy holder style. Top hat buttons and lengths of silver chain for yeah. sleeves and really shimmery blue harem pants. It, it, yeah. it, it's not kind of it's not. It's a good it's look. Not Post Grace Jones. It's not hip hop eighties. It's not like high conceptual over you know sexual no. or anything like that. You know, it's just. She's it, dressed a bit like a fighting fantasy character, isn't she? I suppose so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's sad, of course, you know, she's she's dead, and you know, we're now living in this sad. 
era, it's not something about that time, is it living in an era where astronauts and disco stars yeah. were dying, dying of old age, you know, we're into that era now, you know. One thing I do notice on this is actually someone in the audience is finally getting animated. There's a lad mm. with a Benny Perm and a black and white satin jacket with an eagle on the back, and he's getting on down. Mm. He's trucking. <laughs> yeah. mm. Although next to him there's two girls with flick back hair and they're, they've turned their backs on Viola to look at the monitor and try and find themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, there's also a, a bloke in a red V-neck jumper right in front yes. of the stage. He's standing there totally motionless with his arms folded, mm. just looking off in yeah. the other direction. It's really insulting. Oh, Rex, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's who I most identify with here, and I, I hate it. You know, I think my life would be a lot more fun if that was not the case. But alas, yeah. to to drink my way out of that state means drinking my way into a state where... There's nothing I could do about it anyway because I'd no longer be able to control my <laughs> movements. But, you know, but you know, the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. What might no. be right for you may not be right for some. Actually, what, exactly. I, what I do like about this record is the the weird playground lyrics to it. You know when it says, uh, yeah. going to find somebody who's twice as cute because I didn't like you anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, twelve years and six kids didn't didn't like you anyhow, and it's yeah, yeah, okay. It's easy to think you're going to find somebody twice as cute when you become yeah. single in your forties, but uh, you step out into that chilly old world again, you may find things have changed. Yeah, it's uh, really funny that, though because this this song uh, it's a cover version, but the lyrics actually mash up the two different cover versions. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I didn't like you anyhow. All that kind of stuff's from the country and western version. Yeah, uh, which which ends up with the bloke singing words to the effect of oh, "I'm going to see you in a wooden box," oh. and yeah, Viola chose not to use those lyrics. No, no, and also Viola. A few flicked V's would have been good as well, I think. With with a massive <laughs> smile. Yeah, and enjoy it while it lasts and then have yeah. fun on Match.com. Yes. I love to travel, but I'm also happy with a good movie and a bottle of wine. Mm. I-N-T-J. Not <laughs> interested in hookups, so stop bothering me. <laughs> So the following week, gonna get along without you now. Soared twenty places to number twenty-seven and would eventually get to number eight. The follow-up, a cover of Gordon Lightfoot's "If You Could Read My Mind," failed to chart, and her and the charts got along without each other for the next half decade. After spending the eighties as an in-demand performer on the London gay club circuit, she scored one more top forty hit when her high-energy cover of Joni Mitchell's "Both Sides Now" got to number thirty-five in March of nineteen eighty-six. And after living in Brighton for a few years, she went back to America and died at the age of sixty-nine in Phoenix in two thousand and nine. I'm going to get along without you now. And now for something completely different. It's the Charlie Daniels Band and a bit of country rock called The Devil Went Down to Georgia. The Devil Went Down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. 
Peebles is now surrounded by bored-looking females with appalling perms and lank hair, looking like the opening shot of the video for Bohemian Rhapsody if everybody pretended to be Brian May. As he introduces an in-concert clip of The Devil Went Down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels Band. Oh, what a shot that is of Peebles and Co. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's obviously an attempt to get that kind of slightly sleazy rapport that he had with, like, DLT and no Yeah. Like ladies, but it has, it just it just looks again. He looks like a kind of school teacher is about to introduce a kind of fifth form choir choir assembly or something. Mm. Like, he just exudes sort of zero charisma of any kind, sleazy or otherwise. It's mm. uh, you know, it's, it's it's really it's really quite startling, you know. So, born in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1936, Charlie Daniels spent the 60s as a country session musician and played bass on Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline and Leonard Cohen's Songs from a Room and Love and Hate. He went solo in the early 70s and scored a number 9 hit in the US in 1973 with the single Uneasy Rider, about a hippie whose car breaks down outside a regnet bar and he has to talk his way out of a lynching and a possible bombing. This song, about a fiddle-off between the dev and a lad called Johnny, is the first cut off his new LP, Million Mile Reflections, has already got to number three in America, is accompanied by a video of a live performance, and it's up this week from number 38 to number 27. This song, you're either massively pro or massively against. Where do we stand? So it's a strange one, this one. Um, mm. I kind of... I, 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 I didn't listen to it at the time, and it was... Um, I I I found I think I find it sort of curious, you know, mm. to say the least. Um, I mean, it's, it's also like some sort of bold, bold audition of like Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale, I think, you know, it's a similar mm. sort of tale, you know, done in sort of, you know, country southern rock manner. Um, I think what always intrigued me, most of all, was that it's supposed to be a kind of fiddle-off between Johnny and the devil. Yeah. But... but the devil's solo is way, way better than his. Yes, you know, the middle section, yes. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have been, you know, unless he, you know, he's going to really sort of study it by having to go, you know, like, you know, give yeah. him an absolutely shite solo, but you can't ruin the mentor of the record. So, you know, he's got a pretty decent solo. And he overdoes it. It's it's, it's a much better solo than yeah. than Johnny's sort of winning one at the end. Yeah. You know, and I mean, other... yeah. I think what we're supposed to take from this is that the devil's version's a bit disco-y, so it's wrong. Uh, and yes, he, and course, he's trying yeah. to take the, the fiddle to new horizons. Mm, mm, and yeah. that, that's not to be approved of. Yeah, this is it, because it has a bit of an accompaniment as well, you know, that slightly funky guitar or whatever, you know, and a bit of keyboard bass with the um, the chap with his arm in a sling on the keyboard. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. What's, what's interesting, they, they, I remember when it was played at the time, there were a lot of versions where the very last line, they changed um, Son yes. of a Bitch to Son of a Gun. Yeah, the radio pathetic, version Son of a Gun. Oh, that's right, but here they've got they've managed to get the you know, bitch through. Yeah, what, what I like about this is uh, country... And country rock is one genre where you can have novelty hits and no one cares. So yeah. it doesn't ruin your credibility or cheapen you in any way. Like you could be mm. Johnny fucking Cash and do a boy named Sue, and it's yeah. fine. It's fine. Yeah. Good luck to you. It's an admirable thing, I think. If fucking indie music took that approach, might have had fewer songs about sullen, thickos, ex-girlfriends <laughs> from Rygate. I mean, it, it, if Radio had done my ding-a-ling, it would have <laughs> capsized them somewhat. Yes. Yeah. But if you can't make a record that's truly remarkable, you can make one that tells a story or yes. says something unusual or is diverting in some way, you know. And mm. Apart from some nice fiddle playing, there's not a lot to this record, but, no. you know, you follow it through and... You get something out of it, so it's, mm. it makes it instantly better than most records that have ever been made. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, this song would come on the radio when you'd be like, oh, well, fucking hate. I mean, I hate, I hated country music at this time. Simply because it was it was cowboy music, and I fucking hated the cowboy films that me, me dad and me grandpa would make me watch. Yeah, yeah and it's a, and there's always that sort of racial thing, you know, when you're talking about cowboy stuff. There's you know, yeah. implicit, sometimes explicit racism. I mean, the thing about Doctor Hook is that you know it's hard to guess what their politics were. I suspect they might yeah. be quite progressive, but there's, you don't have to guess what Charles no. Daniels' politics no, no, are. No, no. The more the longer it goes on, I mean, he started off actually being kind of somebody with a sort of democratic kind of leaning or whatever and an uneasy rider that you mentioned yeah. you know, it was clearly you know this is the hippies but then by the early 80s you know then he does things like you know the south's going to do it again and yeah. in america and all these yeah. kind of what, things what this I'm world sure. needs is a few more rednecks you know that one yeah yes. fucking no. great it's <laughs> yeah. great he says i love them rambo movies i think they make a lot of sense and it's a shame <laughs> old john wayne didn't live to run for president Oh, and and I don't care what nobody says. I don't trust old Gorbachev. I don't know who turned him on, but it's time to turn him off. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but also also the the prescient line: "You intellectuals may not like it, but there's mm. nothing you can do because there's a whole lot more of us common folk than there's ever going to be yeah, of you. you." Yeah, no, the whole yeah, thing is sort yeah. of very proto-Trumpian. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he re- he's a complete nut now. Yeah. I mean, you you even here you look at that Stetson, and that's the kind of Stetson that only quite extreme right wingers ever could or would wear. Right. That, that, this is not a Willie Nelson, Asheville, North Carolina, uh, mm. accessorized with a hemp shirt Stetson. You know what no. I mean? This is that, that's pure states' rights. That is. That's a <laughs> that's a rooted tooted. Uh, Belly hanging over the wide belt, love it or leave it millinery. It's you, you, you walk in the shop right to buy one of those. It's harder to buy a gun than one of those in uh, in America. You you the, you go in and the hatter gives you a list of words you have to say out loud. And if you hesitate, you get re- rejected. No, 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 <laughs> can't do it, boy. No, no, he's very, he's very, he's, and he's got that frightening presence as well, Charlie Daniels. He's like one of those kind of boss hog guys where, like, yeah. he looks obviously completely unfit, but you really wouldn't fancy your chances with him. And you, it's no. like you can always hear him breathing and wheezing yeah. the whole time. But then uh, when he gets angry, is it becomes much louder and his face mm. goes purple, and yeah. you know it's time to leave the area before. Your ass yeah. is peppered with buckshot. <laughs> Pinko Vlonderbuss. Yeah. yeah. But the thing about this song is, even though you listen to it and you know you're hating it, it's telling a story and it's like, oh, got to find out what happens at the end. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Rodney King, OJ Simpson, the devil losing in a fiddle off. Fucking game's rigged, yo. <laughs> Johnny has a go. Automatically playing to the home crowd, playing the, the, the hometown favourites. And it's just, oh, it's just fiddling. This is, yeah, this is boring and annoying. Mm. But what fucks me off is the devil just gives up. And it's like, no, mate, you were better. Yeah, yeah. You were better and you're the fucking devil. Yeah. Demand a recount. Yeah. yeah. Look into Russian interference, you know, because something is wrong with his verdict. Yeah, definitely. Or, or uh, use some of the special powers you presumably have. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you what's great about this, though, is... When they show his band, the keyboard player's got one arm in a sling. Mm, mm. Yes, it's like, um, wonder what happened Gary there. Gary Lineker at the 1986 World Cup. Yeah, yes. but it's true grit because it's as he rang up Charlie. He says, oh, you know, we've got these gigs coming up. Yeah, 
Sure do. Well, I, I broke my arm. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, you're still expected to turn up if you're any kind of a man. Mm. It mm. has to be pointed out that these are even scabbier cowboys than Dr. Hook. Mm. Terrible man. And Charlie's made that really big mistake that fat blokes do by wearing really tight, high-waisted jeans so the, the gut swells out under the belt. Mm. So he, yeah, he's, he, yeah. he's just got a pendulous gawk. <laughs> yeah, it's like the sort of trousers that they advertise in the back pages of the Sunday Express. Yes, yes. You probably got it from a shop called yes. uh, Big and Tall. <laughs> the following week, the devil went down to Georgia, jumped seven places to number 20, and would eventually get as high as number 14. Despite playing at Jimmy Carter's inauguration in 1977, his next single, In America, was a big mardi-ass whinge about the Iranian hostage crisis. And he ended up supporting George Bush Jr.'s rubbish war in Iraq and stating that in the future, Darwinism will be looked down upon as we look down upon the flat earth theory. And there was that great follow-up record to this about the violin battle between Brown and Board of Education. <laughs> Come on back if you ever want to try again. I done told you once, you son of a bitch, I'm the best as ever been. And he played. The devil's in the house of the rising sun. The chicken in the red bed, I'm picking out dough. The bandage of dog bite, no child no. Charlie Daniels' band and the devil went down to Georgia and from country rock to a bit of reggae from Errol Dunkley and OK, Fred. Born in Kingston in 1956, Errol Dunkley recorded his first single at the age of 14 and spent the latter half of the 60s recording for Prince Buster, Joe Gibbs and Cox and Dodd. In 1972, he recorded his first LP on the Gay Feet label before forming the African Museum label with Gregory Isaacs. This is his first UK single to enter the charts and it's up this week from number 34 to number 23. Oh, what a palate cleanser this is. <laughs> oh, yes. Reggae, late 70s, poppy as fuck, wasn't it? There's so much of it. Actually, from the sort of 60s onwards, there was a strong sort of, you know, presence and it was a strong sort of black presence in the charts and it was yeah. consistent all the way through to the kind of the mid to late 80s, you know, and then, and then there comes a point where reggae becomes extinct, um, almost, or, or it's kind of, um, you know, obviously drum and bass and stuff like that, and the various kind of, you know, sort of, it's, it's children, you know, become become the thing. It's it's mm. bizarre, really. I, I, I remember discussing this with a press officer one time who dealt with a lot of, like, reggae artists, and I said, why do you think this is? And she says, because they never turn up to interviews on time, that's why, which is, <laughs> I think is really an entirely inadequate explanation, really. Well, I think by the mid-80s, there was no need for all these reggae acts because it had already achieved yeah. perfection and we only needed one mm. group, which was UB40. Yeah, of course. Yes. Regular yeah, top yeah, ten yeah. hits so, and yeah, what yeah. else do you want? Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
but you know, it's like, you know, they have barbecues and stuff like that, and really only bring on you know the reggae records for like you know the sort of the granddads and things like that. Really, it's uh, yeah, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, it's odd. It was just a, such a central genre in the charts, and then overnight it just. Yeah. Well, not quite overnight, but I mean, it, it just fizzled out. And, you know, where is reggae now? You know, it seems like you could you could turn on Top of the Pops any week and some one-hit wonder would pop up with this mm. brilliant song. Yeah. yeah. And, and this week, it's Errol. Yeah. And the Dooleys, of course. Yes, of course, yes. And this is not even one of the 20 best reggae hits from the British charts in the 70s. And no. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's completely irresistible. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, you completely. have to seriously wonder about anyone who could possibly dislike it, you know. I mean, you do meet mm. these people, and, oh, I don't like reggae. <laughs> it strikes me as really weird, because it's, uh, yeah. it's like, how do you have your mind shut tight on reggae, you know? Surely you can yeah. shut your mind as tight as you like, but it will still creep in under the door like uh, the smell of weed, mm. you know. I mean, if you, yes. if you don't like rhythm and you don't like feel... And you don't like a nice simple tune. Melody. Oh, all right, you know what mm. is your thing? Bad fish or <laughs> oh, like Monday mm. mornings? Yeah, a, but this is great. I mean, the the yeah. the John Holt version is really a rougher mm. and in some ways a better recording because it's got that really brutal Cox and Dodd production on it, where it's like you know mm. it blows your speakers out with the bass. Uh, but it works brilliantly for Errol Dunkley and his his. His yeah. cheeky persona, you know what I mean? Is cheeky yes. sticking his ass out, and you know, and it's the, yeah. the whole band. In fact, they've got that great Jamaican style of the time. You know, like Errol's yeah. wearing one of those cardigans that you used to see on old fellas in Ladbrokes. You know, and or the controller yes. in the minicab office, like a fawn, yes. fawn-coloured cardigan with like ribbed woolly jumper trim, with a gold mm. necklace. Um, it's like what someone who was played by Glyn Edwards or Michael Robbins <laughs> would wear. And he's oh, and he's God. got trousers and shoes in almost exactly the same shade of light yes. brown. It's fucking yes. brilliant. Um Yeah. And the the bassist has got a hat with ear flaps and a shiny tracksuit yeah. with red, gold and green trim. And he's yeah. doing like chicken moves with this massive Gibson Thunderbird yes. bass. And you don't see much of his feet, but I'd put money on Dunlop Green Flash. Uh, yeah, definitely. And the trumpet player in a white golf sweater and a pith helmet mm. <laughs> with his white yes. jeans tucked into wellies. Oh, my God. <laughs> the thing is that they look brilliant in a way that is, it's not just like white guy resistant. I think, I don't think you'd have got away with that as a, a British black guy. It's like you have to be yeah. Jamaican. Only Jamaicans can, can yeah. somehow get away with these incredible, like, mad outfits. This is around the time that um, Rockers came out, yeah. one of the greatest music films ever. And the fucking outfits them lads are wearing. <laughs> Jesus. Back then in Jamaica, the, the style appeared to be getting a tank top that Granville used to wear <laughs> on uh, Open All Hours and wearing it over a tracksuit top. <laughs> Amazing. But also the the massive tam. I mean, there's one. I think the keyboard players, he's got essentially got a, a Rasta Guinness hat on with a Star of David on it. And that did my head in. Yeah. You know, around about this time, the, the concept of the 12 tribes of Israel was coming into vogue in Jamaica which essentially said that it was it was them lot who were the actual the true Israelis. 
Yeah, it's 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 mm-hmm. often best not to probe too deeply into uh, <laughs> further yeah. complicate matters. Yeah, yeah. yeah like it's yeah. like Rastafarianism. Uh, it was sort of I remember when it was very uh, very trendy to sort of vaguely assume that Rastafarianism was some sort of great enlightened uh, philosophy. Mm. Really, it's mm. like hardcore Protestantism, but with a mm. uh, a sort of a African twist on it. It's uh, not really. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine a Rastafarian Ian Paisley? <laughs> well, he'd, the thing is, he'd make great records. Yeah, <laughs> save all stuff from Sodomy One. <laughs> uh, no, but <laughs> it's it's it's. I mean, yeah, it's a very good record. This, but it's it's. I mean, I do remember. I have distinct memories of watching, if not necessarily on this episode, watching this song because I remember, you know, in the company of like, you know. Parents yeah. and grandparents, or whatever, and while you know, um, <laughs> you know, we were, you know, black, you know, we used to sort of black people have been on top of the pops recently. You'd have thought that people had kind of got used to it. You know, there was still a sense of like it being kind of inherently a matter of common. If anybody of you know, of a darker skin, you know, hue came on, you know, it was still the days of Marnie language and the tales of love thy yeah. neighbour and stuff like that. And I do remember, you know, having to feel kind of dis- defensive, you know, when my grandma going, you know, a few sort of ribble remarks or whatever, and uh, which I shan't repeat. And uh, but then, you know, I was kind of interrogated as to, you know, what uh, Yaga Yaga was, you know. And I said, yeah. What you don't know? Oh, oh. And was just like, well, what is it then, David? What's a Yaga Yaga? Well, it's perfectly obvious if you're, if you're, you know, if you're out on the street, what a Yaga Yaga is. And I was, no, mm. I knew the fucking street. I didn't have a clue. I think it means an accomplished coxman. I seem to. I seem to oh really? Gather, yeah. yeah. Well, apparently, uh, well, in actual fact, according to Dunkley himself in an interview earlier this decade, a yaga yaga is a man who doesn't dress to impress society. Hmm. <laughs> obviously, uh-huh. as, well, yeah, as obviously demonstrated by this performance. Mission accomplished there, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a term used by Jamaican parents when their kids come back from school with their shirts hanging out. Ah, okay. Yeah. So basically, the, the lyrics are, "Okay, Fred, now you're a." Chatty bastard. Okay, all right. I thought it was yeah. okay, Fred. Now you've kind of achieved the level of, um, I don't know, sort of brown belt in sexual prowess or something. Okay, so it's that as well. It could be the well, there you are. It's just as well I didn't. He's singing from the viewpoint of a society girl who uh, fancies the look of Fred mm. and likes the idea that he doesn't give a yeah, fuck. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, oh, she she wants to she wants to be one too. Mm. She wants to get with mm. him. So yeah, it's it's very it's it's, it's essentially Lady Chatterley's lover, isn't yes, it? I su- yes, I suppose it is. In, in yes, reggae I suppose style. It is. And of course, at the end, you know, now I'm now I'm a yaga yaga. What do I do? So I wish I could go back in time and explain that to my late like, grandma. I feel yeah. I've actually sort of um, perhaps impugned or cut aspersions on you know my sort of family's attitudes towards race and what have you. My, my granddad actually was a curious case. He used to work as a bus conductor in Wembley. This is Seven Days Janker's granddad. And, um, you know, yeah. come up, you know, obviously there was quite a large black population there. And, um, you know, he'd just go up on the con- top deck, you know, when they're all on board, and he'd say, like, come on, all you sooties, let's have your fares then, you know. <laughs> no. Which apparently, you know, no one no one minded, you know, it being the bloody it 60s or whatever, you know, exactly. But then once, when my dad was a kid, he remembers, like, you know, making some sort of disparaging remark about black person. And, Granddad was down on him like a ton of bricks. Said, "No, you don't use that language. You know, it's not right. It's offensive." Blah blah blah. You know, yeah. so it's curious. You know, a mixed picture, I suppose. But there you go. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, if if you're ever in search of great opening lines, you can always turn to reggae. Always. I, you can't. I mean, yes. Okay, Fred. Now you're a yaga mm. yaga. Okay, Fred. Mm. Bully for you. <laughs> yes. You can't top it. Yeah. You can't top it. 
I love Bully the term for you. Bully for You bully is not you. used no, enough in pop yeah. songs, is it? Yeah. Because it reminds me of the closing credits of Bullseye, you see. What you... So I get to listen to When I hear this song, I get to listen to a really decent tune and I get reminded of, of my favourite television programme. Yeah, God, Willie, yes, yes. Made in yeah, Nottingham. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you see, civic pride wells up in yeah, there. Yeah, of course, yeah. And Bully for You sounds like it should be proceeding from Joyce Grenfell in a St Trinian's film, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> tell you what, I'll tell you what really stands out here, though, as well, is that the audience have got no idea how to dance to this record at all. No. Despite, as you say, reggae records having been in the British charts regularly for more than 10 years at this point. And there's a couple mm, yeah. of mods down the front, like mod revivalists, just yeah. shifting from foot to foot in desultory fashion, not at all in their element. And you think, hang on a minute... And this is another example of what we were saying before, the crushingly negative effect of punk, right? Where flattening and gelding white music forevermore. Uh, so these lads think they mm. like mod music. What you into? I like mod music. But what they mean is they yeah. like the rhythm section of Foxton and Buckler. Um, mm. So yes. just as punk sort of wiped out the art of the arrangement, and the art of the rhythm guitarist and all this sort of stuff. Um, it also wiped out any kind of funkiness in white music for a really long time. Mm. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a shame because uh, it's not like this is a difficult record to dance to or anything, you know, it's uh, far from it. But yeah, mm. they're just standing there like idiots. Kind of, but you were talking things like the pop group and certain ratio are kind of coming in at this point. But yeah, I think the punk reggae sort of, you know, Bobby Marley, Bob Marley talks about the punky reggae party thing. You know, there was a sort of an affinity, but yeah, it was it, they didn't necessarily sort of bleed into each other. Uh, I suppose that much in the way that like. The, the but the thing is, yeah, you say you say that the white kids aren't dancing, but the problem is, look at how Errol Dunkley's dancing to that. That no white person could could move like that. Well, it's not even that. The only white person I've ever seen dancing like Errol Dunkley does in this song is Chris Morris when he's taking the piss out of Jarvis Cocker in the band Blouse in Brass Eye. Mm, yeah, mm, or Mr. Mm. Bean, you know. Mm. It's just, yeah, it doesn't, it just doesn't look cool, does it? Yeah. yeah. So the following week, <laughs> OK Fred leapt nine places to number 12 and would spend two weeks at number 11. The follow-up, Sit Down and Cry, only made it to number 52 in February of 1980, and he never troubled the chart again. Number 23 this week, Errol Dunkley and OK Fred. And now for something very silly. It's Cats UK and Luton Airport. As I closed the garden gate, all was really in state. Suitcase in each hand and no transport. The taxi should have been there. Peebles, now sporting a straw boater which makes him look well out and John, introduces us to something very silly. And he points to his hat band to reveal the name of it. Luton Airport by Cats UK. 
Formed in London in 1978, Cats UK were a group put together by the songwriters Paul Curtis and John Worsley, who were perennial contenders in the Song for Europe contest. Curtis was best unknown for being the writer and recorder of the Northern Soul single Name It, You've Got It, under the name Mickey Moonshine, which had previously been attributed to Paul Nicholas and Alvin Stardust recording under assumed names, and had written Let Me Be The One For The Shadows, Britain's 1975 Eurovision entry. Worsley, on the other hand, was best known for writing What Do You Want and Paul Me For Adam Faith, both number ones in the fixed is. Jack in the Box for Clodagh Rogers in 1971, and I'm Gonna Spend My Christmas with a Dalek in 1964. This song, based on the Campari advert of 1977, was originally offered to Lorraine Chase, but after she turned it down, they placed an advert in the stage and formed a group of dancers and club singers that originally called the Cats, but after discovering there was a Dutch rock band of the same name, they had to do a bit of a London suede. It entered the arse end of the charts last week, and it's jumped up 15 places to number 54 this week. Well, this is what I'm talking about exactly. Number Mm. 54, unknown, rubbish novelty song, why is it on top of the pops? Because it's a fucking variety show all of a sudden. Fucking unions! <laughs> Smash them! Well, I hope that squeeze suit, you know, because well, yes. it's, it's, it's a flagrant sort of, not even like acknowledge, you know, nick of like cool for cats. Mm. I guess it just shows that even, you know, at this stage, people are still in that kind of like carry on abroad mentality, you know, like, you know, trips to Spain being this kind of, you know, sort of crowning sort of novelty and joy of the year, you know, packing, packing off to Els Bells and all that. Yeah, and the fact that the song is clearly referencing a product. That was advertised. What what the BBC playing at? This goes yeah. this goes against all everything they stand for. It was a strange thing when he had these link, links. Do you remember when David Dundas? Um, yes. I put my jeans on, you know. And of course, in the re- original, it was it was Brutus. Whatever it, what, what were the jeans? Was it Brutus Levi? I can't remember. What yeah. It, but anyway, you know, but then yeah, he, you know, and, and then it was a very, very familiar song. And then he kind of releases a single under his own name and he has to change the lyrics to, I put my jeans on, I put my old blue jeans on. It's just like, yeah. you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so hey, that's yeah. Lord Dundas to you. <laughs> and of course, there was the version of Anytime, Anyplace, Anywhere, mm, yeah. which was changed from That's Martini to Dancing Easy. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Please, for a... For a hit record, this is really a string of disasters, like yeah. artistic and practical. Like, first of all, you decide you're going to write a song about an advert, and you know, back in the days of the mass audience, when a whole nation could be captivated and amused for months by mm. Lorraine Chase being asked uh, if she was wafted here from paradise and saying. Yeah. Now, nah, Luton Airport, which, mm. I mean, that's a line. If you were the script editor of an ITV sitcom, you'd mm. have the red pen hovering over that one. Yes. You know what I mean? And yet, that it was a sensation. It was a national sensation. Mm. So you write a song about that character with a view to Lorraine Chase singing the novelty record, but she doesn't want to do it. So you get someone else in who looks yeah. literally nothing like Lorraine Chase whatsoever. No. No. And yet you leave in all those lines like, they even think that I'm the girl, the one that's on the telly. Despite yeah. the fact that no one on earth would look at this sort of quite brassy, 
broad-featured blonde woman and think, mm. oh, it's the willowy, thin-faced brunette Lorraine Chase. Yeah. Um, so it becomes completely meaningless. And they get the line wrong as well, because yeah. in the actual advert, Jeremy Clyde, who to me will always be Algernon in the version of The Importance of Being Earnest that was on mm. Channel 4 in the 80s, and uh, Governor Herman Gessler, in the <laughs> ultra-shit Euro production of William Tell that used to be on Anglia through the night uh, in about 1990. He says, were well, you wafted here from paradise? Whereas here the line is, uh, he says, they look into my eyes and say, darling, are you from paradise? Mm. Which not only is ro- is, it, is that wrong, it kills the joke. Yeah. Because she's not from Luton Airport, is she? She's come from yeah. Luton Airport. Mm. So, I mean, and... You know, people would have heard that line 6,000 times by now in the ad break of 3-2-1, you know what I mean? So yes. to still get it wrong is is unforgivable. And then on top of everything else, the best band name you can think of is The Cats, and then it turns out there's already a group called The Cats, so you have to be Cats UK. Not even The London Cats, which no. you know would sound quite cool. Or um, the, the Dunstable Cats in this right, case. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so yeah, it just, it, um, everything falls apart. The whole, the whole thing. It's it, it, unbelievable mm. that that this actually went on to any success at all. They look like the cast of Widows, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, these are not cats you'd want to share a picture of on Facebook. <laughs> nice enough women, mm, but mm. Um, yeah, a bit hard faced. Yeah, and and you can tell that that the the main lady is an actress because she mm. only has eyes for the camera. And yeah. is determined to sell this piece of shit. Whereas an actual yes. singer would have been at least a little bit thrown off her stride by the fact that the audience clearly fucking hate it and yes. are so deeply yes, unimpressed. Do. <laughs> the first thing you see as the camera pans across to the stage is two people just walking off as it begins. Oh, yeah. God, it's this. They just walk away. <laughs> Um, just to go and stand near a stage where there's nothing happening. Um, And there's one lad doing mad frog dancing and literally everyone Mm. else is just standing there with these appalled expressions. Yeah. When it gets around to the last chorus, they do a sort of a camera movement round where you can see the front row of the crowd and you've never seen a more openly bored group of youngsters. They've all got their arms folded and sulk there's yeah. one lad even sucking his teeth <laughs> it looks like they've been taken out to a county show and made to watch a police yeah. dog display it's just like yeah. oh. <laughs> god yeah it just it's so it must have been soul crushing but they don't care because they're just hired no. uh showbiz stage people just doing their thing and getting the fuck out to yeah. Emmerdale yeah. or wherever she ended up. It's like Rock Follies falling on extremely hard times, isn't it? It's like, yeah. yeah it's, it's, um, One of the Ken Cats was a, a dancer in Rock Follies. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't be able to tell it from this. It's, it's some very derisory uh, hand jiving mm, yeah. and gum chewing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and you sort of, I mean, I don't know, because I don't know anything about the background of these people, but it's sort of got that air that you think maybe they didn't actually talk like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm. perhaps they might sound a little bit more actressy or a little bit more. Oh, darling! If you met them after mm. the show, it's a little bit yeah. put on. 
I mean, a simple, simple yeah. joke of the original, you know, the advert is that, and it, you know, it amuses sort of, you know, British people no end is the contrast between, you know, this kind of suave, sophisticated, you know, advert and the kind of, the very sort of crude, regional, or in this case, Cockney accent that emanates from the um, glamorous woman's mouth, you know, and that's, sort of, and then that's mm. a joke that reprised later in that Boddington's advert where it's all about, you know, buy egg, you look gorgeous tonight, Petal, you know, and, um, mm. you know, they, 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 which is slightly more effective, in fact, um, you know, but in this case, that that, that's, that that irony, that contrast doesn't even exist because you know they actually no. look like the kind of people that the first you know that, they, that as soon as they open their mouth it'd be Kathy Burke, you know. Um, mm. So yeah, again, it's 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 mystif- conceptually mystifying. The advert was about them being in some really exclusive location, and mm. and the reveal is that the the girls working class, mm. but the song's about just going to Majorca mm. to get your end away, mm. and also also if your record is such a flagrant rip-off of Call for Cats. Why mm. do you then call the group Cats UK? Is yeah, it drawing sure. attention to it, isn't it? Mm. Like they're just hiding mm. it in plain sight, I don't know. Yeah. But I'm almost tempted to give this record a pass for the most desperate and pointless key change in music history. Yes. <laughs> like literally yes. in the last three seconds of the record as it <laughs> fades out, there's a key change. So, you know, yeah. God bless you. So the following week, Luton Airport soared 25 places to number 29. And three weeks later, it reached its highest position, number 22. The success of Luton Airport encouraged Lorraine Chase to change her mind about her pop career. And she signed to EMI and rushed out the single, It's Nice Air In It, which failed to chart. Cats UK's follow-up single, Holiday Camp, failed to chart, and after one more flop single, 16 and Looking for Love, Cats UK split up in 1980. By which time, World in Action had broadcast the episode The Chart Busters, which exposed the chart-rigging activities of their label WEA, where a former employee stated that Luton Airport was a perfect example of the label's nefarious activities, which led to a band no one had even heard of having their chart returns fiddled with in order to get them on top of the pops. That World in Action documentary is fucking mint, isn't it? Mm, the, mm. Just the way the charts were fiddled with. I mean, the, the, the bands that get thrown up. I mean, the Pretenders, mm. Brass in Pocket. Mm. That was hyped up. Mm. Although, oddly enough about that show, a lot of the things that were getting hyped, things like Earth, Wind and Fire and Fleetwood Mac, you think, well, mm. yeah, they, they shouldn't need hyping, you know, something like this. No. And in terms of the, yeah. the safeguards that they had when they explained what the safeguards were, it, 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 it effectively seemed to be an honesty system yeah. <laughs> in the music business. All the people at the record labels were going to the record shops and saying, oh, can I just borrow your chart returns book for a bit and mm. put a few ticks in? The bribes... Mm. They weren't massively impressive at the time, were they? Yeah, yeah. It was satin jackets. Yeah, CBS were offering bottles of whiskey and satin jackets mm. for extra ticks on Judy Zook and uh, <laughs> Dusty Springfield records. Yeah. yeah. Oh. You'd walk around in your satin jacket with Judy Zook written on the yeah. back. Where'd you get that? Oh, um, shop. The yeah. price your soul as well. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I was a bit pissed off that you know, you always hear about this going on with journalists in the music business getting bribes and stuff, yeah. and it didn't happen when I was there. And no. I, I was a bit shaken. It was it's like you were expected to lie about these records for free. Yes, you know, it's, it's, they get pissed off if you didn't say they were good. You know, mm. and it's like, well, you know, it's this. It clearly isn't. If you want me to say it's good, give me a fucking bottle of scotch. See if anybody's got Taylor and Judy Zoo tour jacket. 
Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 1993, Dina Payne, one of the Ken Cats, joined the cast of Emmerdale as Viv Hope, and nine years later, when Lorraine Chase herself joined the soap opera, quote, the first thing I said when I met Lorraine at Emmerdale was, I did Luton Airport and you didn't. Why not? She said it was because she knew she wouldn't get paid for it. And of course, she was right. We didn't. (laughs) Then we filmed a few scenes together. And by the time we were in our shared dressing room, we had put the world to rights. A happy ending. Well, I tell them, don't I? No, mate. Luton Airport. Luton Airport. And now at number 18 on the chart this week, it's yet another hit for Dave Edmonds. This time round, a song called The Queen of Hearts. We've already covered Dave Edmonds in Chart Music 25, which was set in the summer of 1973, and since then he's signed a solo deal with Swan Song, Led Zeppelin's label, and formed the group Rock Pile with Nick Lowe. Although as the two of them signed to separate labels, they're not allowed to record as a band and have made do with guesting on each other's recordings. Of the two, it's been Edmonds who's had the bigger chart success and this single, written by Hank DeVito, the pedal steel guitar player in Emmy Lou Harris's backing band, is the follow-up to Girls Talk, which got to number four for three weeks in July of this year. And it's up this week from number 20 to number 18. And Nick Lowe's... There, isn't he, on the stage? There he is, yeah. yeah. Playing a really ridiculous bass, which has got a spike off the end of it like a double bass. That's health and safety. Terrible. Yeah. This is more dad bait, isn't it? <laughs> Something for everyone on top of the pops when ITV's on strike. But it's, it's funny, I mean, Dave Edmonds, people Nick Lowe, they would have got a lot of press coverage, you know, Enemy mm. and Melody Maker. I think probably because, you know, they were probably because of the good copy or whatever. So they had quite yeah. a high profile in the music press, which probably Definitely, would have lent them yeah. a sort of sheen of, you know, credibility. And, you know, Dave Edmonds has just come off a massive hit. Mm. Mm. And, you know, Nick Lowe is, uh, I believe he's number 12 in the charts at the minute. Yeah. Cruel to be kind, just slipping down the charts. He's down from number 12 to number 14 this week. And he'd done, like, I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass, you know, which is a great yeah. single, you know. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's always yeah. funny, you know, again, like, reading a lot of like, Alan Jones at the time, who's obviously kind of big mates of these people, is that you know that at any point they will have had quite a few drinks, either 15 minutes previously to this moment or certainly in 15 minutes' time, you know. <laughs> they were heroic in, in, in knocking it back. Um I think one thing, I mean, it's it's perfectly decent sort of bash out single. The only thing you made me think about was something that kind of happened again around this time was that, because I remember I, did, I wrote a book about Ace Records and um, I interviewed them about, you know, Chiswick, you know, the label that yeah. put out a lot of stuff. You know, and pub rock was very much kind of, you know, a little strong overlap between pub rock and punk and everything like that. And what I was saying is that it, for, for a while it was pretty good. You could bash out, you could put out a song for a cost of about £100 and it would mm. chart, whatever, you could do that. because. And, but when things changed drastically, and perhaps the whole pop thing, it was with the onset of video, when you were obliged to 
you know, attach a video to it. Yeah. And that just changed them completely. That just sort of like halted the access for labels like, you know, their success dried up really because they weren't able to kind of, you know, sort of do that and, and match things, you know, budget wise. Um, so, you know, it's one way, one of the ways in which things, you know, that video did make a kind of huge difference to that because, and so it just kind of reminds you of that there was a lot of the records like this sort of rattling around the charts in the late 70s. And it was, you know, it, it wasn't just the sort of inherent bankruptcy of the medium, you know, that meant that they stopped flowing. I think it was that factor. Yeah, rock and roll still hanging in there by yeah. your late 1979, but kind of mutating towards rockabilly, isn't it? The thing is, of all the times to get nostalgic, 1979 is kind of one yeah. of the worst you could have picked, you know. This sort of, that slow, elongated 50s revival was still in progress, but mm. it's like you... you you could hardly look less relevant and less intriguing playing a sort of, you know, mushy, like soft Ted shuffle. Like at any other point in musical history, you know, like the, mm. the air is full of all these possibilities and opportunities and chances to create something adorable without even having to try that hard. That's just what 1979 is. And yet yeah. here we are doing the fucking hand jive in a, in a bingo hall in Glamorgan. You know, like, <laughs> and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't do anything because songs this basic are designed as empty shells, right? Into which mm. you're meant to pour whatever it is that makes you or your band unique mm. and exciting. So mm. this is just so flat and brushed and self-contained, you know. And it's the sort of flat arrangement that might work on a tricky, complex song, but it leaves this one just sounding like nothing. You know, it's mm. just neat and accomplished and totally unremarkable. It's like it's like the it's like the dead Eddie Cochran, you know, trying his best. Um mm. and yeah, it's like I don't have any opinion on Dave Edmonds, you know. It's just no. old time music performed flatly with a little bit too much good taste, you know. There's nothing obnoxious mm. about it and nothing intriguing about it. You know. The stray cats are clearly sort of you know something that's you know that, that, that that's specifically sort of retro, but probably as far as Dave Edmonds and people like Nick C- C- Cohen said, they were making kind of music at the moment, you know, because pub rock was kind of at the moment, even if it is yeah. kind of retrograde, you know, it not quite as far gone as like Shiwadi Wadi, whatever. But yeah, it, it's all about to be kind of swept aside by everything that's kind of brewing in like Futurama or what have you, and the various things that sort of emanate from that, pop wise. Um, although ironically, after all of that, you still get Shaking Stevens. You know, like, yes, <laughs> in the eighties. So it's not most like, successful you know. chart act of the eighties. Don't forget. Yeah, yeah. It's presumably what first attracted all those people to this sort of music is the rawness of it and the sexiness mm. of it and the, the the sort of punch of it. And of course, that's what you didn't get with any like the you know they revived the TV show Oh Boy. Um, yes, around this time, and yes. it was all. <laughs> It was all like this. It was like the mm. the original uh, rock and roll and rockabilly records, even the crappy ones, are yeah. all worthwhile because no one knew what they were doing. And even mm. if you were just doing a derivative cash grab record, you might still end up doing something remarkable just by yes. accident. You know, it might just come out sounding really loud or really electric or, or mm. you know. Um, but by now, it's just a sort of set of compositional cliches and a... There's like this yeah. bland orthodoxy of performance and all the records are, are produced, you know, like they sound produced. There's, they don't sound like they were recorded in a bucket, you know, so you lose 
anything that might be good by accident. And you just mm. end up with this, like a pill, like astronaut food version yes. of rock and roll, you know, with nothing to save. So the following week, Queen of Hearts would jump seven places to number 11, its highest position. The follow-up, Crawling from the Wreckage, would only get to number 59 in December of this year, and his only other top 40 hits were a cover of Guy Mitchell's Singing the Blues, which got to number 28 in March of 1980, and The Race is On, a collaboration with the Stray Cats, which got to number 34 in June of 1981. and the Queen of Hearts. And now for a beautiful song from a beautiful lady. Great pleasure to welcome her back to Top of the Pops. It's Donna, and I can't get over getting over you. I'm getting over you Getting over two People who were so in love Oh baby, we were so Peebles, on his own, introduces a beautiful song by a beautiful lady. I Can't Get Over Getting Over You by Donna. Born Rosemary Brown in Islington in 1951, Donna was relocated to Ireland at the age of five because the lack of clean air in London was making a bad lair. After performing in various concerts as a trio with two of her sisters, she went solo in 1965 and was signed to Decca in 1967, where she adopted her stage name. In 1969, she entered Ireland's Song for Europe competition and came second. And the following year, she was given the song All Kinds of Everything, which won and led to her beating Mary Hopkin and Julio Iglesias in Amsterdam, the single becoming number one in Ireland for nine weeks and getting to number one over here where it stayed for two weeks. After the follow-up, Who Put the Lights Out, got to number 14 in 1971, she dropped off the UK chart radar until 1975 when she scored two top 10 hits with Please Tell Him That I Said Hello and It's Gonna Be A Cold, Cold Christmas. However, in September of 1976, she lost her voice and had a growth removed from her vocal cords, leading to speculation that she would never sing again. But after she made a complete recovery, she went back into the studio in late 1978 and released the LP The Girl Is Back in April of this year. This is the follow-up to Something's Cooking in the Kitchen, which got to number 44 in April, and it's not in the charts yet. And here, gentlemen, is your two Ronnies moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. At last, someone drags this kind of music out of the bordello and the speakeasy. Mm. And yes. drags it into the convent where it belongs. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, I know, seriously, there's some people for whom there's nothing more essential than a complete and deliberate absence of carnality. And mm. they always strike me as a little bit suspicious. But presumably, they're the ones who want to hear a smoky, jazzy love ballad uh, crooned mm. by a, a church freak and 
future member of the European Parliament rather than yeah. a, a grown-up woman of the world, you know. Well, yeah. I don't think that's quite as respectable as they presumably do. Um, mm. But it, it, it is weird, the whole Irish middle-of-the-road entertainment industry of the 60s yeah. and 70s, which is where Dana really comes from and really yes. belongs. Um, I mean, it's only across the sea, but there's a almost total ignorance of that on the part mm. of the English because um, we never saw much of it except on, no. you know, stars on Sunday occasionally and stuff. I mean, even those of us who sort of caught flashes of it from, like, family members or or who later lived in parts of London, which at the time was still full of older Irish immigrants and they'd get a lot of the Irish cabaret acts over to play in the pubs yeah. and ballrooms and stuff. I mean, yeah. that still went on 20 years ago, less so now because of changing demographics and because mm. Ireland's changed so much that people who move to London now are, are, have different cultural interests and are, are a different generation. And I suspect possibly that old showbiz world may well have pretty much died over there too or or is about mm. to. But it's really fascinating, the weirdness and yeah. occasional creepiness of middle-of-the-road Irish yeah. popular culture from the old days. It makes Elaine Page on The Two Ronnies look like Janis Joplin at Monterey. It's, and, yes. And that's what Dana is, and she doesn't make a lot of sense outside that world. And mm. the sort of narrow overlap between that and the Radio 2 of 1979, you know. And mm. I don't really feel qualified to hold forth on it because I'm not an expert. I'm just dimly aware of it. But I think yeah. every Irish listener to this will know exactly what I mean. And any one of them could tell you about the uh, the creaky father teddishness of uh, yes. of the universe where, you know, uh, Dana is a natural phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Dana represents, you know, just one of these people that, you know, eventually gets into religion purely for the sake of the sanctimony and, you know, and whose primary obsessions are things that Jesus himself never even discusses in the New Testament, you know, like mm. homosexuality, you know, and abortion, etc., etc. Just very much, you know, like at the top end of the agenda. Um, it's just strange, strange old done. I remember there was this thing about um, NME, um, you know, that she took great exception to something that was the NME, you know, when it's some some filth they just flung at the pop kids and talking about how she wouldn't have it wouldn't she wouldn't have the enemy in the house or whatever you know made a great point in the 70s good for strange, her strange yeah. Thought, you know yeah all right not enemy.com you know i don't think she was talking about that but you know the, the hit young gunslung enemy um but um um in 1975 apparently she was voted this is a strange thing the top female singer in britain by the tv times and the readers yes. of the enemy Yes. Strange, you know, just like yeah. not a sort of cast around find anyway. First of all, she's not, isn't she Irish? You know, and that whole thing why she was sort of set off against Mary Hopkin, which is a bit weird. Um, but I mean, it's strange, you know, she doesn't appear to. I mean, sort of issues about like United Ireland, etc., etc. Don't appear to have, you know, because apparently, you know, she recorded. Um, she helped with the recording of uh, the World Cup final song in nineteen eighty-two, yes. Your Man, for the Northern yes. Ireland squad. You yes, that yeah. No, apparently. Yeah, they don't, you know, it turns out that no one's really that fussed about all this, um, you know, sectarian, whatever, you know. So, yeah. So there, was, there was Dana, then a long gap, then uh, mm. Neil Lennon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. This is very Manhattan transfer, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Something for the non-Rs. Mm, yeah, yeah. Says absolutely nothing about real kids' lives, does it? It certainly didn't <laughs> say nothing about my life, I can tell you. Yeah. Not a jot. What I always 
think of when I think of Dana. It's when I was a kid, I, I used to get Shoot magazine, right? And they'd do right. the questionnaires with the footballers. Yes. And there yeah. was some sort of hulking great footballer being asked, you know, like favourite food, steak and chips and all that. And then it said, are you married? And the response said, yes, to Dana. Now, I didn't realise <laughs> at the time that was just the boilerplate response for how you know how you answered that question. And everyone else has said, yes, to Pat or, you know, yes, right. to Sue. And I thought he was saying, yes, to Dana. <laughs> As if you won't believe this, but, but yes, I'm banging Dana, the, <laughs> the tremulous Irish songbird. And I remember thinking, I wouldn't have thought that a grisly, no-nonsense holding midfielder from Division 2 would have been her type. You know? But then it often is, yeah. isn't it? The, those yeah. quiet, slightly worried-looking women, a lot of the time, uh, they like a bit of rough on the quiet. They want a yaga yaga, don't they? Yeah. Mm. Unlike Dana, who I believe married a hotelier from Newry. Mm. Yeah, very early on, and I think has remained faithfully um, you know, wedded Bless since. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely right. girl. Mm. Again, this was a record that was well outside the charts, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, not s- even in the top 100. I know, and it's kind of an annoying thing, you know, and it's just like, so if you're going to sort of like cast out a bit, you know, let's just not go for the kind of already established, let's let's give a punt to something hovering on the outside, given that it's all chance, you know. Of all the people to give a leg up to, you give it to Dana. I mean, well, yeah. Talk to be- work on transmission by Joy Division or something like that, you know. Well, you could have had new entries this week outside the top 40 include On My Radio by Selector mm. and Typical Girls by The Slits. Yeah. It's not Dana, though, is it? Come on. No, it's not. (laughs) It's just some weird dancing in the middle, don't you? Mm, mm. Well, it's not so much dancing as just like a really slow walk from one bit of the stage to the other bit. Mm. Sort of female Cliff Richard, really, I suppose, in many ways. Clit Richard, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) If we will. I don't think we will. (laughs) So the following week... And for every week after that, I can't get over getting over you. Failed to make the charts, making this her final appearance on Top of the Pops. She spent the 80s making a series of religious LPs, breaking off in 1982 to record Your Man with the Northern Ireland World Cup squad and relocated to America in the 90s, only to return to Ireland in 1999 to stand as a presidential candidate and become an MEP in the European Parliament in 1999, even though by then she was an official American citizen. get over getting over you. So it's three weeks at the top for Stuart Copeland, Andy Summers and Sting. It's the police and message in a bottle. Formed in London in 1977 by Gordon Sumner and Stuart Copeland, who had met in Newcastle when the latter was playing drums for the prog band Curved Air and the former was a school teacher with a band on the side, the police were originally a trio with the Corsican guitarist Henry Padovane and they released a single Fallout in May of that year. 
A month later, the bassist Mike Howlett left Gong and invited Sumner and Copeland to play with him in a band called Strontium 90, which also featured the former Zoot Money's big roll band and soft machine guitarist Andy Summers. But after a couple of gigs and a few aborted demos, the project dissolved. However, Summers was offered a spot in the police, which he accepted on the condition that Padovani was knobbed off, which he was. After the band dyed their hair blonde for an advert for Wrigley Spearmint Gum, which was never aired, Copeland's brother Miles financed their first LP for £1,500, which turned out to be Atlandos de Moor, and after hearing the demo version of Roxanne, he used it to land a deal with A&M. Roxanne was put out as their debut single, but it wasn't put on the Radio 1 playlist as it was about a prostitute in the midst of the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper, and it failed to chart. But the follow-up, Can't Stand Losing You, was banned outright by the BBC due to its cover, which depicted Sting standing on a block of ice in front of an electric heater with a noose around its neck, but it still got to number 42. The next single, So Lonely, failed to chart in November of 1978, but a combination of appearances on BBC shows such as The Old Grey Whistle Test and Roxanne becoming a minor hit in America led to that single being re-released in April of 1979, where it got to number 12. This single, the first cut from the new LP Regatta de Blanc, is the follow-up to the re-release of Can't Stand Losing You, which got to number two in August of this year. It was the highest new entry at number eight on its release, it knocked caused by Gary Newman off the top spot, and it's now at its third week at number one. Before we get stuck into this song and everything, what a top ten. Mm. It's the event is writ large, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Them heavy people, one day at a time. If I said you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? Cause since you've been gone, whatever you want, don't stop till you get enough dreaming. Video killed the radio star and this song. Mm. What a what a mixed bag of eventiness it is. It is, yeah. yeah. Really I suppose the only harbinger in that is video killed radio star for obvious reasons. Yeah, but, uh, and uh, very nice at top of the pops to play this particular record off a wax cylinder. Um, yes, or well, it sounds like they got in the producer who did the August Man's recording of Israel in Egypt, and for <laughs> the video, the the cinematographer from Fred Ott's sneeze. It's. Uh, <laughs> It really is like watching one of those high-number cable TV oldies video stations now. Yes. It looks fucking awful. And this is Top of the Pops, right? Should have been the first call, the first priority for this video. Yeah. Uh, the sheer disrespect of giving them what looks like an eighth-generation standards-converted, you know, bootleg mm. of the message in a bottle video. Why? What's yeah. going on? What's the problem? It's just an issue with a lot of things, though, at this time, in terms of, like, mystifying decision-making, that kind, is that this is still kind of pre-the-face and something like that. People just don't have the kind of sensibility just to be remotely bothered by that, as long as the audio is okay. No, no one, yeah. you know, <laughs> even though yeah, it's not it necessarily. Isn't. It sounds yeah, I know. terrible. Well, I mean, no, obviously, the audio, it sounds, I know it sounds sort of, you know, terrible, but I don't know, it's just, as, as, as long as it's pop, as long as it's pop, even, you know. Um, yeah. um, you know, as long as it's like, it, it's just people just didn't really, really, really care about. You know, people didn't have a kind of sensibility to object to things like that. I suppose, yeah, all, all kinds of things, all extraordinary stuff is just waved through. It, it seems mystifying now. But. That's what the police were like, though. Yeah, they really stop. did not give a fuck about the videos mm. around about this time. I mean, you know, a year from now, to do 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 da 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 da. That that's oh, we're in the snow. Uh, let's fuck about. Yeah. So lonely. Oh, here we are in Japan. Let's get on this train. 
and fuck about. Well, I mean, there's there was a lot of videos of people just fucking about, yeah. but yeah. there's something uniquely hateful about the police ones. Uh, I mean, partly it partly what I hate about this video is their attempt to appropriate some of that street energy at the start. Yes, where they got a load of like sort of punks smoking fags in the street and that in their studded leather jackets you know mm. being alienated and teenage and the only thing that speaks to those kids man is the the goose stepping pop reggae of the 30 something police it's fucking ridiculous and i hate and as a kid i always hated police videos because of their yeah. wacky movements right you know in all their videos they sort of half dance with their hands hanging straight down by their sides, and it's just yeah. like their knees going up and down, like actual yeah. policemen saying "hello, hello, hello," um, and <laughs> or the proto of, river dance. Yeah, and it's it's obviously because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do with their hands. Mm. They don't know how to move. Um, but it comes across as a sort of aimless joviality, which clashes really badly with the supposed intensity uh, of the songs. And it mm. meant that as a kid, I could never really trust them. And rightly, as it turned out, because all that joviality and all that arms around each other's shoulders, like mm. mugging for the camera stuff was completely fake. And they utterly despised each other. Like, as you were. Oh, yeah. But I mean, that you get. We're in the police. But then, you know, you get, yeah, quite, that's quite the case of quite a lot of bands, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, I suppose, obviously, the thing about Sting is that kind of decades of sort of sustained and monumental onanism, you know, have kind of had a retrospective spoiling effect. <laughs> and, I mean, the fact is, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, you know, hate Sting, love the police. I did love the police at the time. I still think yeah, those records too. are very, you know, it, it, this is a great, great record. And, I mean, you know, because it's more than about just appropriation of reggae i mean it's far more than white reggae it's that kind of like that that, that sort of chiming that tuning that sense of sort of it's not just the hair that peroxided they've actually sort of found a way of peroxiding pop you know they've got this extraordinary kind of you know lightness of pop being you know i mean and that almost like helium i mean walking on the moon i think being you know the follow-up which comes later you know being an even sort of stronger example i mean this was just in its you know in its time this 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 was just this was just the you know i didn't you know no one really cared what they did i mean this was just you know one of the very best things out there it really was yeah it was i mean the the, the video is essentially uh them backstage and the camera's gone out uh, to to check out the kids on the street the overall impression is is oh look we're just sitting around we've got fuck all to do uh, oh, let's make a pop video for our next single. Yeah, rather than punch each other in the face, which is what we yes. really want to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, I, I agree. This would be a decent record if you could somehow fumigate it and remove all traces of sting, you know. And mm. I don't know if that's true of all police <laughs> records, but it is true of a fair few. Um, I think last time the police... You kind of wrote the song, though, didn't they? Yeah, but there's yeah. so much. I mean, I think they are still much about you know Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers. Really, it's not like Noel Redding in you know to extent Mitch Mitch and Jimi Hendrix experience. I mean, it's not the Sting experience. I mean, you know, they both make a highly significant contribution, definitely. And without them, I mean, you know, Sting solo, it's just like dear God, you know. <laughs> yeah, but the trouble is, even on a police record, his presence spreads mm. and creeps across mm. the surface of these mm. records. It's like a like a spilled urine sample you know mm. just dampening <laughs> and darkening them irreversibly like even before you actually have to look at him like lean do that thing where he leans forward into the camera and puts mm. his chin down and does that mock mm. serious expression 
in every mm. video. I mean, like, sucking in his cheeks. Yeah, Again, especially oh. especially retrospectively, you can you know, I mean, they, 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 all of these things. I mean, I don't think at the time he realised he was just going to turn out to be the mother of all tossers. I mean, although there were mm. there should have been signs. I mean, Alan Jones interviewed him um, a couple of times around, you know, and I think that you know, he's, you know, he, he realised what a kind of rather sort of stuffy and solipsistic man Sting was, you know, in that period of sort of pre-fame and, and during fame. You know, everybody else is going out kind of, you know, on a sort of roistering for the evening, you know, he kind of goes back to his hotel room with this sort of an improving book and, uh, um, you know, and, and... Knock over a load of candles. Yeah, and it's just wonderful story yeah, as well. Have it off a... <laughs> I'd like them playing this... Have it off for eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> this, this big, huge gig that, this, that the police went to do, I think in what was Bombay, I believe it was, and Sting looks around the crowd and he's kind of irked to see that there's not really many locals there. It seems to be mostly kind of liggers, you know, sort of tourists, mm. fats, whatever. And he makes this kind of grand announcement at the moment. You know, he wants to sort of fling the doors open to the venue so that the kind of the ordinary people from outside can surge in. And he kind of makes this kind of like, open the doors, you know, and, you know, and it's something that kind of, you know, the local populace are going to come surging in. And of course, nobody does, you know. It's like one or two curious people standing around outside, all of whom got better things to do than come watch the police. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's, it's, I, I do, I suppose I, I loved these records at the time. They are, mm. I mean, they have been kind of tarnished somewhat, I suppose, but, you know. Yeah. So I like, I like Walking on the Moon. Um, yes, yeah, it's great. That's the only one that I can really accept. It's all, you know, Bergerac meets Rockers Uptown, as I always think of it. <laughs> but I can live with that one because there's so much <laughs> space in the sound. And mm. by definition, space is a place with no sting in it. Um, <laughs> and this one is, it's not a bad record, but it sounds quite claustrophobic. And so you get, it's like he's breathing almond water and dried kale right into your face you know but you, and I, I mean I appreciate he wasn't quite the same proposition in those days but even so you look at this video there's Sting in combat trousers and a red dicky bow uh, mm. almost as if he was the biggest cunt in the world um, <laughs> and it's yeah the signs were criminal. there fair point it's criminal that he spent so fucking long around a bloke whose dad owned the CIA or whatever it was and, <laughs> and came out unscathed, you know, to pose in <laughs> yogic fashion with a balalaika and, uh, yes. and single-handedly destroy the Amazonian rainforest or whatever it was. He, I can't remember what he did. <laughs> are, we, are we so down on Sting because the police were so good once? In the same way that we quite rightly hate UB40 in their... Uh, in their jaw waddy waddy face because they were so good before that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. There's, there's no. I, don't, I mean, poor old UB40. I think it is more down to the content of or lack of it of Sting's character. I think is really what it ultimately comes down to. I mean, I love this song. Mm. It's good. It is objectively good. Yeah, um, and a couple of months later, I would get uh, for Christmas that year. I would get uh, my own tape player and the first two Police albums. Mm. Mm. Uh, I even bought Zenyatta Mondata yeah. a year later. So, mm. yeah, I mean, around about this time, the police were my favourite band. Yeah, there was a lot of people, definitely. So the following week, it was knocked off the top spot by Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. The follow-up, Walking on the Moon, got to number one for a week in December of this year, and they'd have three more UK number ones before splitting up in 1986. Again, another cheap video there, Walking on the Moon. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know, getting on getting on NASA next to a massive fucking space shuttle or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, the location might be a bit glamorous, but 
all they do is arse about again. It's a bit like the lady doth protest too much. Me thinks they arseth about too much. Mm. You know, it's probably because they just felt yeah. that kind of like create a really excess sense of bonhomie and esprit de corps and all that kind of stuff. It's a hat-trick of weeks at the top for the police with Message in a Bottle. Join me if you can on Radio 1 tomorrow afternoon. That's it for this week's Top of the Pops, except to leave you with this one from Fleetwood Mac. Formed in London in 1967, Fleetwood Mac were originally a progressive blues band who scored a number one in 1968 with Albatross and number two hits with Man of the World and Oh Well before disintegrating in the spring of 1970 when their guitarist, Peter Green, wanted the band to donate all their money to charity and left the band when he was told to fuck off. After struggling through the early 70s with myriad lineup changes and having to deal with a manager who formed his own group on the side and told them to tour under the name Fleetwood Mac, they eventually settled on a permanent lineup in 1975 and became a huge band in America, where the 1977 LP Rumours sold 8 million copies. However, despite the LP getting to number one in the chart over here for a week, none of the singles from the album made the UK top 20, with Dreams being the highest placed at number 24. This tune, the title cut from the new and long-anticipated follow-up LP, which was, at the time, the most expensively produced LP ever, is the follow-up to Rhiannon which got to number 46 for three weeks in March of this year. And although there's a dead expensive video recorded at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles with the USC marching band and everything, it's being played over fucked about with footage of the lighting rig in the top of the pop studio. And it's up this week from number 53 to number 30. I, I must say, as a, as a youth on a council estate in Nottingham, this is probably the first time I'd ever heard of Fleetwood Mac. Hmm. Rumours, did that mean anything to you in your it, oh, it, tiny little it, it, lives at the well, time? It mean, it, yeah, I mean, obviously, I was a little bit older than you, so I was conscious of, like, you know, rumours and it's kind of ubiquity. Um, and, um, and, yeah, and obviously the delay, and then obviously at this point, Lindsay Buckingham is kind of, like, you know, he's you know, sort of talking heads and stuff like that and thinking, oh, God, having some of that. And um, mm. um, hence, you know, I suppose some of the kind of effects on this particular track, you know, it's an attempt to sort of, like, you know, get with the um, new sort of new pop, new post-punk programme. You'd rather the Knack than Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yes. about this time, don't you think? But it means that the weirdest record on the whole show is by the most mainstream yeah. act. And yeah. it's no secret nowadays that Tusk is a, is a pretty freaky and radical and uh, totally unexpected record in that it's basically mm. the epitome of Californian soft rock going mm. post-punk, but with coke in place of speed and and, yes. and nothing in place of punk. And so when you listen to <laughs> Tusk, when you ignore all the sort of ambient Christine McVie ballads, it's full of this really strange yeah. and confusing music. And it's probably the only example of an LA FM band being influenced by the Gang of Four and Wire. Mm. Um, but people forget <laughs> that the... The weird production on the album isn't just weird, it's incredibly expensive and lush at the same time. Yeah. And that's what's 
so crazy about this track because it's all African drums and stern horns. And, and hitting a lump chop with spatulas, don't forget. Right. And on an actual post-punk record, that would come out as pure aggression and attack. Whereas mm. here, there's all these different layers of sound at like different virtual distances from the listener and all that sort of thing. So that posh West Coast studio indulgence makes it less commercial than an Adam and the Ants record because it sounds weirder yeah. and it's less immediate, you know. Um, mm. But it's it's amazing. I once persuaded someone I knew who was DJing to play this through a big sound system and it sounded fantastic because mm. at that volume, um, it doesn't sound like a big roar, just a big rumble, like the way most records that are mostly yeah. drums sound. Uh, it all opens out and it feels really enveloping and you can hear where all that money went, you know. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love mm. it. I was massively intrigued by this record, but uh, probably for the simple fact that it was it was on Dial-A-Disc at the time <laughs> and I'd just discovered Dial-A-Disc. So it was, that, it was that time in between discovering Dial-A-Disc and then your parents discovering the phone bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, on, on a red old-school telephone, it, it still it still sounded good. Whenever you hear a record played on a brilliant, brilliant system, it's, it's a bit like drinking a sort of 50-quid bottle of wine. I think I can't allow myself to get used to this because I'm going to have to listen mm. to it on a bloody, kind of, you know, tinny old crap machine at home. The um, thing about this album is that it... Um, I, I think it can't, it possibly suffered in, reput- in reputation because of people's tendency to sort of see validation coming through commercial success sometimes, and the fact that it only sold mm. four million or whatever, you know, um, makes you know people sort of you know so this idea is, is disseminated with being a kind of a flop. And I suppose in fairness, you can understand. I mean, the record companies. I mean, this there's quite a few people putting out double albums, you know, this this year, and with varying kind of success. You can imagine the record company quaking the boots a little bit. I mean, you're right, you had Pink, you had Pink Foy's The Wall, but you've also got this year Stevie Wonder's Journey from the Secret Life of the Plants, you know, which was a rather, yeah. <laughs> rather less successful, you know, and it's people just sort of like, you know, you know, sort of roosting, you know, on, on some sort of immense success in the mid-70s, like Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, and they're thinking, oh, shit, now what are they mm. going to do? And, um, yeah. you know, but... I, is it... it is it people trying to get out of their deals as well by putting out as many sides as possible? Um, I don't know. In one go. That. What, are you in a sort of metal machine? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, genuinely don't know about that. I'm not, not so sure, actually. I think they, they just said, I think it's, you know, it's a genuine album of um, grand ambition, you know. Mm. And metal box as well. Yes, yeah, of course, all metal box, you know. Is, but I was, I was thinking perhaps more about the kind of the more sort of, you know, the Olympian sort of stratum of artists. Uh, yeah. What puzzles another thing that puzzles me though, right? You know, we we're talking earlier about that program, you know, the World in Action thing. I mean, you can yeah. understand somebody having to sort of hype up, you know, Luton Airport or whatever. But then apparently they were kind of like, you know, having to give them a little bit of bunk, bunk for this. I mean, you know, what kind of conversation goes on there? So, you know, what's this? Oh, Fleetwood Mac. You must remember Fleetwood Mac, you know, rumours. No, 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 never heard of him. No, well, Albatross. No, no, no. Yeah. Oh shit! Well, I, I don't know. If, I, don't, I mean, this sounds weird to me. I don't know if any, this is going to fly at all. It's just like, look, mate, there's a satin jacket in it for you. You know, come on, just yeah. give it a, yeah. go. I mean, just, why do you have to hype Fleetwood Mac? You know, well, people would do anything for a satin jacket in 1979, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> See, the thing about Fleetwood Mac is that I think makes them the most interesting. First of all, there's a fair bit to dislike about them if you just look at the peripheral stuff, right? They were completely indulgent stadium soft rockers and Mick Fleetwood is a ludicrous character and you know if you're being mean you can say that Stevie Nicks sort of 
uh, witchy pretensions and a top hat and chiffon scarves and all that. A bit of an embarrassment. Mm. But none of that stuff really matters because they're cosseted millionaires' safety and the resulting uh, freedom and self-indulgence actually freed them up from all the commercial concerns which made most of their peers so safe and makes their yeah. stuff now sound so unrewarding. So instead they had this bug-eyed lunatic, Lindsay Buckingham, going crazy at the mixing desk yeah. and, uh, you know, nutty, cokey Mick Fleetwood clapping him on with his massive shovel yeah. hands. And uh, <laughs> and everyone's shagging everyone yeah. else. And, and Stevie Nicks is free to indulge all these sort of half-baked musical ideas which were obviously yeah. brilliant but just needed a sympathetic genius producer and arranger with whom she had a certain degree of friction which amazingly mm. enough was exactly what was there in Lindsay Buckingham yeah. with their their eternally unresolved yet unworkable love affair um so just mm. on Tusk um like Stevie Nicks like despite the fact that it's like really it's Lindsay Buckingham's album because he controlled the crazy sound of it really Stevie Nicks is yeah. the star of that album because she does uh Sarah uh which is divine and Storms mm. which is one of the most quietly intense songs that there is and Beautiful Child which is her best song and it's one of my all-time favorite songs and to me one of the most poignant and intense and beautiful records ever um and that wouldn't have happened um, if, you know, if they'd been in a studio under the Westway for six days with a hack producer and some Chinese amps, you know. They'd probably mm. have sounded like the mm. head boys, but, well, no, they yes. wouldn't have sounded like the head boys, but they certainly wouldn't <laughs> have weighed in with anything uh, as subtle and insane as this particular single. Mm. It's just such an odd group, such a sort of hybrid, you know, with these kind of tr- sort of, you know, three or four different axes, you know, at work. And then as you say, you know, then there's all these shifting romantic alliances, you know, going on at the same time. You know, it's the opposite of that thing. They always say that a camel is a horse designed by committee. But, you know, in a sense, you know, it's like an efficient committee now would design a proper horse or whatever. And then we're like a kind of camel, really, in a funny kind of way, if that makes sense. No. no, didn't make sense. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. You go back to it two or three times. It'll the the crisp lucidity of it will kind of ping you like an epiphany, <laughs> just like this album. Then, yeah. <laughs> uh. So the following week, Tusk jumped twelve places to number eighteen and would eventually get to number six, the seventies lineup's highest position to date. The follow-up, Sarah, would get to number thirty-seven for two weeks in January of nineteen eighty. And that closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. Also closes the book on the boom period for Top of the Pops and the television ratings because 11 days later, on Monday, October the 22nd, ITV increased their pay offer to 17.5%, backdated to the 1st of July. And two days later, it was welcome, welcome, welcome home to ITV. It was back. I remember downloading that whole passage where ITV comes back on again uh, from the old torrent site, UK Nova, back in the days when this was a rare jewel. Yeah, I miss you, UK Nova. This is back when YouTube just had self-made videos of people skateboarding on it and talking about 9-11, as opposed to everything that's ever happened in the history of the world. (laughs) So it was a... 
it was a, a real treat to get something like mm. this and you felt like you had something very special. Yeah. Well, what did ITV show that night? Well, the news at 5.45, The Muppet Show with Dudley Moore, Crossroads, a new series of George and Mildred, Coronation Street, there you go, David, 321, and the first episode of the new miniseries of Quatermass. But BBC were ready for them because they countered with the first ever episode of Terry and June. (laughs) Long Weekend by John Kane. That's what it is. As as you can check for yourself on the Wikipedia page, uh, list of Terry and June episodes, where each of the 65 programmes gets an awesomely dry synopsis. Yeah. Um, in what must surely be some kind of conceptual art prank. Um, <laughs> because there's nothing quite like reading the events of an episode of Terry and June related in the most starkly prosaic fashion, as though <laughs> someone had erased the laughter track, right? Like, e.g., for, for this episode, it says, hang on a minute, I've written this down. They arrive at 26 Elm Tree Avenue in Purley, Surrey, to decorate before they move in. The weekend gets off to a bad start when they arrive late at the house after traffic problems. The following day, they start to decorate and the wallpaper peels off. On Sunday, neighbours Brian, Roland Curram, and Tina Pillbeam, Anita Graham arrived to introduce themselves and tell Terry and June about the previous owners, all of whom were odd in different ways. Then they discover a hidden door in the kitchen, but it leads only to a toilet. Part of the <laughs> toilet then falls on Terry's head and he ends up in hospital. Oh, now, I man. think this might be my favourite. Mm. I think this might be my favourite Wikipedia page of all. And sometimes. Really? When it's really cold in my flat, I read through it all while listening to a recording of a distant church bell tolling. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, ITV's back, Coronation Street's back, more importantly. Yeah, well, Coronation Street viewers were prepped for this because Mm. it's one of my clearest memories. After the blue screen uh, for weeks and weeks, finally, like the dove appearing over the flood with a twig in its mouth. They started showing that uh, specially filmed trailer um, mm. for Coronation Street. It was a short clip of Bet Lynch and Len Fairclough. This is something, incidentally, which doesn't seem to exist on the internet these days, because I'd like to see it again. Yes. Of Bet Lynch and Len Fairclough standing on the Coronation Street set out in the street and pretending to gossip about what had been going on mm, to keep like you up fish to date. wives. Yeah, just to so you know where the storylines were going to recommence, yeah. uh, which I think was Len's ill-fated visit to the swimming baths. But I, <laughs> I might be getting that mixed up with something else. But seeing that really was the, it was the, the crowning jewel of a memorable autumn. Yeah, I genuinely had such high regard for Coronation Street. I, I remember seeing that, and I actually felt that my intelligence was being insulted. You know, I just thought this is actually yeah. kind of sublime, kind of cleverly wrought, sort of subtly camp comedy or whatever, with lots of brilliant sort of little interplay and what have you. You know, all inspired by Tony Warren, a creator, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, and to me, it was that that instance. You know, like speaking to camera thing with with then it was it was it was as if like Forty Towers had come back and Basil mm. and Sybil had sort of come to camera. Hello there, hi. We're back.
back again with our zany capers. It's been a long yes. time since we we're on screen, but yes, we're back. And don't worry, yes, Daft Old Manuel is back too. It's just you know, mm. I, I just it felt on that level for me. I was deeply, I was wounded. And isn't it amazing that in those ten weeks or so, absolutely nothing happened in Coronation Street? <laughs> you think with the with the ITV off, they'd have found lots of things to do. Yeah. Yeah, I was to say, David. You, I was to say, you were you were offended by them breaking the fourth wall. But yeah. uh, considering some of the sets they used to use on Coronation Street, it was more like breaking the third wall. Third wall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So, what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with Blankety Blank with Katie Boyle, Kenny Everett, Lisa Goddard, Alfred Marks, Ted Mould, and Eunice Stubbs. Then Wolfie Smith and his communish. Chums get into trouble for giving out free bags of coal in Citizen Smith. After the news, it's the new series of Play for Today with long-distance information about a local rock and roll DJ who finds out that his daughter is emigrating on the night that Elvis dies. That's brilliant, that is. Then it's Shirley Williams in Conversation, where she has a blather about racism with Andrew Young, America's former ambassador to the UN, and finishes off with a sports night special on the golf and the Rotary Watchers Ice International. BBC Two is examining the Tory party's hard-on for monetarism in Newsweek. Then there's an examination of how the Aztecs built their empire in the documentary series of Gods and Men, followed by Empire Road, Tony Bennett sings, the posthumous Richard Beckinsale sitcom that everyone's forgotten about, Bloomers, set in a flower shop, then the documentary series Circuit 11 Miami about the American court system, and finishes off with the news. Channel is running a documentary about the Swiss religious group Friends of Man, the 1971 film Do You Take This Stranger, the news, then the safari documentary showdown at Governor's Camp, and finishes at 10 past 11 with French news. I don't know if that's the news in French or news about France. Who cares? I couldn't get it. (laughs) So yeah, Channel, they're just fucking going through the drawers, aren't they? Any old shit, chuck it out. (laughs) Yeah, well, what's new? <laughs> so, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? I mean, it's strange because you've got Don't Stop Till You Get Enough on, but they've kind of, sort of in a way, you know, it's a terrible thing to say, but they've kind of thrown away slightly on legs and curves. Yeah, they've they got, have, I mean, have. you know, message in a bottle, you know, quite possibly, but, um, you know. They've been number one for three weeks. Yeah, so it's not like, wow, did you see that thing that's been number one for three weeks? Um, I don't think we're really talking about. Come on, David, it's Cash UK, isn't it? That's going to set the playground alight tomorrow. <laughs> Quite possibly. Uh, do you know what? Actually, we probably would have been talking about that. Just thinking, fucking hell, did you see that crock of shite? Um, yes. Or fucking hell, did you see that crock of shite? Because I had more of a northern accent then. Yeah. I think most likely that, actually, yeah. There's a strange sort of equalising effect. Again, as I was saying earlier on about Top of the Pops, when nothing seems to be kind of more important than anything else. You know, like, you know, the fact you just bung on Fleetwood Mac right at the end there over the kind of credits or whatever. It's just, you know, but then sort of cats, you know, take you catch you take sort of you know, more sort of pride of place and they're in the studio. And, and I remember like being a kid and actually sort of not realising, you know, which were the uh, the important bands, you know, and, and um, you know, I would have probably seen Fleetwood Mac as this kind of sort of rather sort of peripheral outfit, you know, if I'd have been a few years younger, you know. Yeah, but because it was whacked over the uh, the end credits with the um, mm. with with the lighting effects of everything, you, mm. you know, a, a kid my age might have thought that Fleetwood Mac was just a big eye 
in yeah. the in the in the sky, yeah. staring down at us, kind of benevolently. <laughs> but you, you you wouldn't want to piss it off. I would also have thought well, with this, this Michael Jackson fella, you know, that they've had to get Pan's people in because he's really not up to snuff. Legs and co. Oh, sorry, I will say that again. Yes, sorry about that. David, Don't stop getting Pan's people wrong. Um, I think what I would also have thought um, seeing Legs and Co. performing to Don't Stop to Get Enough that this Michael Jackson fella wasn't really up to snuff as a dancer, you know, and a, you know didn't mm. have much kind of stage presence, so they had to kind of cover for him. Yes. I think what I'd have been saying in the playground was, I didn't know your mum was in the doolies. Um, but, you know, it, was, it was a hard environment. Uh, and yeah, probably Cats UK, just because the presentation is unorthodox and the song's about a fucking advert, which is somehow more interesting yeah. to kids than anything else. You yeah. Know? I mean, we despair now about kids watching glorified adverts all the time, you know, on YouTube, yeah. like the fucking unboxing videos and all that stuff yeah and being oh, brand my niece is a fucker for that yeah corporate minded and all this stuff but really that's just a high-tech version of us as kids in it you know like yeah. reciting bird's eye commercials when it comes out of the yes. freezer and stuff and and singing yeah. jingles and like being basically sparrow brain dupes uh, with <laughs> pathetic attention spans, and it, you know, because I don't know about you, but I would sit there and be, oh, great, it's end of part one. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yes. the Landrosser spilling his drink on Joan Collins, and oh, it's the yeah. it's the Weetabix. Okay, like they got yeah. they got names like the Brighton and Hove Albion back four of twenty eighteen. We did it <laughs> to ourselves, um, and yeah. you know, meanwhile, while this is going on, organised labour is pointing to its own chin. And saying, "Go on, mm. go on, right there, just once, just hit me, just once, right there," um, yeah. and the f- the future is forming right here, bleakly, mm. um, and it's going to be worse than even Andy Peebles could possibly imagine. How did Peebles do in his first top of the pops? <laughs> it was abysmal. I mean, it was yeah. it was um, it's like almost sort of black hole. One thing you can say for him. Uh, at no point did his trousers fall down and him then trip over them and land on a dog. <laughs> yeah. More's yeah, the pity. There is that. More's the pity. Yeah, look on the bright side. And what are we buying on Saturday? If you've not already got it, message in a bottle. Mm. Uh, ditto, don't stop till you get enough. Uh, yeah, Mac, Chic, Dunkley, Jacko, uh, and an option on Hook. And what does this episode tell us about October of 1979? You could get away with anything in 1979, and that's good and bad. Yeah, but, you know, things are about to change very drastically and fairly quickly. And that, mid-ducks, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Usual flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusic, Twitter at T-O-T-P, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, Taylor Pox. Ah, see ya. Ta very much, David Stubbs. And ta to you. My name's Al Needham, and you know, I was I was wondering, you know, if you could keep on, because the force, it's got a lot of power, and it made me feel like, uh, it made me feel like, uh, woo! <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Welcome to Camber Sands, Pontin's most popular self-catering holiday centre on the sunny 
Sussex coast. And you can be sure you'll be getting a really warm welcome. It's an ideal centre for sightseeing, with plenty of places to visit nearby. It's lovely here. Self-catering's no problem here. There's a big holiday shop right on site. Plenty of choice, and it's open every day. Gets a crock, ma'am. And you'll please yourself all right. A dip in the pool, or some fun with the kids. Whee! When's the next Olympics? Now come on and fly a kite. And take a look at these famous sands at Camber. Aren't they just made for family fun? You really could be alongside the Mediterranean. That ham's bigger than a football. Our salad bars are famous. Just look at this selection. The entertainment's laid on in style, either in the upstairs ballroom or the club bar lounges. Cabaret, live music, prize competitions and a laugh a minute. And you can finish off the evening by letting your hair down to some of the best of sounds with our resident groups. Got a skirt. What a mover. It's just like top of the pops. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 